Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Gotta love that sitar music. All right, enough of that. Good. Good afternoon, one and all. Welcome back to another solo episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. So I guess it's just one tongue today, you guys. Uh, but we're doing Jordan Peterson. We're doing Maps of Meaning Part 5. So I don't know how many of you have hung in there with me for the whole thing, but this is the second to the last one. I promised to try to wrap it up in six. Um, what I'm finding, though, is that like this bit that we're going to talk about today is my favorite piece but there's kind of a lot left. So I'm, I'm not sure if maybe I'm going to have to summarize, um, paraphrase, if I'm going to have to chop some of it out. Uh, it seems a little bit of a discourtesy to Jordan Peterson, who I who I respect deeply. Uh, but you know what? I promise I'd do it in six. I'm going to do my best. Um, today's episode is interesting. Today... Like this whole middle part of the book, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most important part of the book, it focuses on the Ouroboros, the, the symbol of the Ouroboros. If you guys remember from the last few episodes, that's the image of the snake or the serpent or the dragon that's eating its own tail. So it's a circle. Uh, and like any circle, it has no beginning and no end. It's a, It represents a complete or a wholeness, like what, what you hear about from young or the round is is the word that you hear from uh, alchemy, which Jordan talks about to some uh, to some degree. So it pops up everywhere. This idea of the um, the self created, and so this circle, this serpent eating its tail, it represents something like that. It's it's sort of given birth from and consumed back into itself. So it's the self consuming serpent, uh, the thing that that is uncreated. It has no beginning or end. And it's supposed to be a symbol, like we've talked about, uh, a symbol of everything um, together, uh, what the mystic experience calls the one or the oneness, or what I would call the oneness, uh, that one with the universe type of a, of a sensation that you hear people talk about who've had psychedelic experiences or, or crazy mystical experiences or religious conversions or, or what have you, near-death experiences even, that, um, that what's being talked about here is, is sort of symbolized by the Ouroboros. And so Jordan's like, Hey, you know, this is a very difficult idea to understand. Not only that, it's the most important idea to understand. If you want to, if you want to make any sense at all of reality of your psychology, of how you experience the world, what you think is real, like this idea, this sort of metaphorical idea of the Ouroboros is like very important. Even if it seems like it's not, it's something that you need to take seriously. And so Jordan does a, a good deal of that, taking this idea very seriously and talking about 
the creation myths um, from ancient mythology. And so what the book starts to do now is it starts to use specific examples of particular gods and goddesses and stories and, you know, myths from different religions. And he focuses on, you know, classical stories, um, Greco-Roman, Hebrew, that sort of thing, but also even more ancient stories that, that we kind of barely have evidence of. Like we've talked about already with the, the Babylonian uh, mythology and, and some of the ancient Egyptian mythology, which we'll get into today. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that according to Jordan and according to me, if you ask me, um, that this idea, you know, again, you're not going to hear it called the Ouroboros everywhere. I think that's probably a Greek word or a Roman word, Latin word. But um, but the idea is there in all religious traditions. So what what does it mean? Now, this is something I thought was interesting. I didn't know uh, until recently because we've been using the word chaos and order because that's Jordan's kind of preferred nomenclature, right? He's talking about the world composed of these two opposing forces that uh, taken together encompass everything that is. Uh, things are either chaos or their order. Um, and we talked about lots of ways in which that is said. You know, you might say uh, chaos and order. You might say uh, conscious and unconscious, you know, feminine and masculine. We've talked about lots of these different ways, uh, symbolic or metaphoric ways of talking about the two perfect opposites that when taken together constitute everything uh, that exists, the cosmos and consciousness and all of that. Um, in the Greek, though, the word chaos actually comes from uh, ancient Greek mythology, and chaos isn't like what we think it is. It's not like, you know, an unorganized mess. That's not what chaos means. In the original, chaos was chaos with a capital C, a proper name. Chaos was a goddess. In fact, the one of the first. So chaos and cosmos, those were the first two gods. And that's what I thought was interesting. I <laughs> just sharing that with you. I never knew that chaos and cosmos were, were the opposite terms in, in the Greek, in the ancient Greek uh, language. So the god, goddess, I should say, chaos, she's the consort or wife of the god, cosmos. So chaos and cosmos are considered, are considered opposites. And, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense, but it just never dawned on me before that when I use the word cosmos and I mean all of material reality, space and time and matter and energy and all the things that exist in the, in the universe, reality, you know, that when I say that, I'm, I, you know, from the Greek, I'm literally meaning the opposite of chaos. And it's interesting because it's something that I talked about uh, from the mystic experience that I conceptualize differently. I mean, I don't know if I conceptualize it differently, but I use a different word. So when I was trying to understand it, I was talking about um, being, which which is a word I use to describe the material universe. So that's the cosmos. I, mean, I call it being, though, because you can only sort of experience the cosmos from your from your subjective point of view. So the world is, the cosmos is, what it is to you, not 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 necessarily what it is really, and that's that objective reality that's elusive that we can't quite get a hold of. Um, and so anyway, the idea of, of chaos and cosmos being opposites fits this bill exactly um, with the way that I described being and its opposite, non-being. So, you know, we, we may use those phrases, maybe not in these podcasts, these Maps of Meaning podcasts, but, but in others we'll talk about that. So just kind of, again, apologies for the confusion, all the different different words that we can use to talk about this, but uh, but the idea of being and non-being or consciousness and unconsciousness, it syncs up in this ancient Greek mythology that we get from uh, a book called the Theogony. 
um, um, by is it Hesiod or Herodotus? Hesiod. Hesiod's the guy that wrote that. Very ancient and contains some of the earliest like written down formal Greek myths. And according to uh, according to the um, Theogony, the gods in the universe were created from chaos. So we're going to talk about chaos because because chaos is one half of the Ouroboros. You know, chaos and cosmos, order and chaos, whatever you want to call it. That when you take those things together, what you have is the symbol that we don't exactly understand and we can't tell you much about. But when we think about it, we we recognize that there must have been something uh, that started all of this, or something that has always been all of this. So stated differently, God is either something that created the universe, or he's something that's always existed. You know, it's, or the, the cosmos has always existed. So, you know, there's, there's only one of two ways of thinking about that. Either God created the universe, or God is the universe. And there's really no other way of looking at it. It's either one or the other. And, it, and the question really pins uh, or hinges from the the question you know is is the cosmos infinite or not if it's eternal if it was never created then god is the cosmos there is no distinction between those two words we're just two words for the same thing if on the other hand god created the cosmos if there wasn't one and then suddenly there was one and the force responsible for that that's the thing that we'll call god and there's really only those two ways as far as i'm concerned to try to make sense of of how everything got here all right so back to the ouroboros let's um let's begin with this first bit and i've titled the section unknown known and knower in costume so these are the three constituent elements of reality that we've been talking about. And Jordan Peterson says, look, when you examine your existence and everybody's existence that has ever lived, and you look at what their, what their world is made of, it can basically be broken down into, into three pieces. We've talked about this already, but just to recap, uh, the knower, that's you and I. Then there's the territory of the known, the, the places that we've explored, the ideas that we've already come, you know, come to, the known territory. Then there's the unknown. That's the the class of everything we've not yet experienced, the things we've not yet encountered, um, and and the, the, they're basically those three things. And then we in the last episode we talked about how it's easy to talk about those three things in our day to day experience and like what what consciousness is like. That's exactly what it's like. I'm a knower, and I'm just swimming around in a soup of known and unknown. Some things I know, some things I don't. And th- those are constant characters in, in my reality, yours as well. Uh, but what Jordan does now is he starts talking more in the meta story vein. He says, look, let's stop, let's stop talking about our individual lives, because we've already done a, a great deal of that. Let's, let's now look at the stories we tell about our lives these meta stories that we see in our myths, and we can see how these characters, the known, the unknown, and the knower, how they show up in these myths. And we focused on the, in the last uh, couple of episodes on a particular myth that's really it's the, the oldest that we have evidence of, or one of the oldest, which goes back to ancient Babylon, uh, the Enuma Elish. We talked about um, Marduk, the hero of the story. We talked about Apsu and Tiamat, the, the, the great mother and father, the, the symbols of chaos and order and together them being the Ouroboros. So in that story, um, Apsu and Tiamat, order and chaos, you know, those things were together, and they had to be separated by Marduk, by the hero, in order to, um, in order to exist kind of by themselves, because prior to that, they were existed as, as a unity. They were all together. And the story makes it clear that when they were a unity, 
that there was no being, there was no reality, that Marduk had to separate them, separate his mother and father in order to have a reality. But even stranger, if you remember, Marduk was the force that separated them, right? So so, uh, Apsu and Tiamat were in this embrace. They were together, unified. And that embrace is creative, you know, meaning, quote-unquote, sexual. So they have a child in this embrace. Their child is Marduk. So their child actually separates Tiamat from Apsu. It's, it's, it's the child that's in between. And what's funny is because I think of that as like mythologically as heaven and earth, you know. Uh, chaos is sort of like the heavenly or supernatural realm, the ethereal realm of the stars, you could say. And order is the realm of earth. It's the material. It's the here and now. It's the real. So... Um, so Marduk, the, the hero that, that represents consciousness, if, if you remember, um, that's the thing that separates, uh, it's born from and separates Apsu and Tiamat. And once they're, once they've been separated, see, now you have being, now you have reality. Now you have a place where consciousness can exist. Um, and it sort of seems like from that story, that middle place that separates, uh, Tiamat from Apsu, it kind of seems like that is Marduk. And again, that that Marduk is supposed to represent consciousness. And then you look at you look at ourselves. You know, you and I, we're running around on this world, um, existing in this middle place between heaven and earth. You might say, um, you know, that 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 might be how the the mythological story would put it. But it's not far from the truth. It's not far from the truth. All right, so we're going to continue to look at these the stories of the unknown, the, the known, and the knower in costume, as I say, in the form of these different gods and goddesses from the classical and ancient world. So let's talk about Egypt. Let's begin with Egypt. We did that a little bit at the end of the last episode, uh, but today we're going to talk about a different myth. So Jordan starts like this. The ancient Egyptian story of Osiris and his son Horus is much more complex, and he's comparing it to the Mesopotamian story that we've been talking about. Uh, he says, much more complex in some ways than the Mesopotamian creation myth, and describes the interaction between the constituent elements of existence. So here he's just saying, look, here's another story, just like the one we, we talked about from Mesopotamia, but it's a little bit more complicated. It's coming from Egypt, so the costumes are different. We don't have Marduk um, Tiamat and Apsu anymore. We have different costumes on the characters. We have Osiris, Isis, and Horus. All right, so let's keep going. He says, Osiris was a primeval king, a legendary ancestral figure who, who ruled Egypt wisely and fairly. His brother, Seth, rose up against him. Seth kills Osiris, that is, sends him to the underworld and dismembers his body so that it can never be found. The death of Osiris signifies two important things. Number one, the tendency of a static ruling idea, a system of valuation, or a particular story to become increasingly irrelevant with time. And two, the dangers that necessarily accrue to a state that forgets or refuses to admit to the existence of the immortal deity of evil. So let's just pump the brakes for a second. What is he saying here? All right, so when, when Osiris dies, he says it, it basically means two things. Keep in mind, Osiris is the king. He, he represents order. He's the legendary ancestral king of, of, of Egypt. So when he dies, they lose the king. They lose order. Same thing that happened with Apsu died. You know, they, they, they lost Apsu, and Tiamat, or the chaos, was able to reign without, any, without being checked at all. So here you have the same thing. You have 
Osiris, who's who's dead. You know, the um, the order principles has been removed or sent to the underworld, you might say, and uh, and, he, and he's bas- he's basically saying, look, what that represents is the idea that the way that you're that a that a kingdom is ruled, the culture, the ideas that govern that uh, society, that those things get stale, that people forget what they mean, that they lose their power and their value over time. So he, he says that, you know, that might be a system of valuation or your particular story. But what he means by that is your frame of reference. And that's encapsulated in our myths. You know, our myths are, are, are really going to tell us what we believe and what we act out in our culture. That's what they are, actually. They're, they're the stories we tell about our culture. Um, so that's number one. Number two, it says that the dangers that necessarily accrue to the state that forgets uh, uh, the existence of evil. So he's basically saying, look, whether you're an individual or whether you're a state, um, that you have to consider malevolence and evil. You have to be prepared for that. You have to anticipate that. You have to understand that it's a part of human being. Uh, If you don't, um, you're going to get caught unawares and and bad things are going to happen. And that's what happened to, to Osiris. Seth killed Osiris. Okay, so he goes on, he says, Seth, the king's brother and opposite, represents the mythic hostile twins or adversary who eternally opposes the process of creative encounter with the unknown. When this principle gains control, that is, usurps the throne, the rightful king and his kingdom are necessarily doomed. Seth and the figures like him view human existence itself with contempt. Okay, so a couple things here. It's talking about Seth being the opposite of Osiris, his brother, but his opposite. And that's super important. And there's something that comes up. Uh, I can't remember if this was Jordan or not, but it's something that comes up when you're, when you're studying myth, where, especially in relation to psychology, where the question is asked when you're reading a story like that, where are the missing characters? You want to pay attention for the missing characters. So we talked about that before in the last episode, how when... Uh, chaos and order when the Ouroboros was originally separated. Now, what that what that did was it actually it actually separated into two everything that the Ouroboros created, if you want to call it that. So the Ouroboros is the thing that everything can come from, and when it gets broken into two into into Tiamat and Apsu, um, when that happens, the the uh, creation all of the things that 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 came from the Ouroboros, they're going to reflect their origin. They're going to show themselves split in two the same way as uh, the Ouroboros was split in two. The reason being that they're just a representation of God. And we've said that before, don't want to rehash that necessarily, but the idea is that being, material reality, is a representation of God. So we'll just stop with that for now. Um, So what do I mean by where are the missing characters? So you see Osiris, and he is the he's the good version of the Great Father. So where's the missing character? It's the bad version of the Great Father, right? Because it's split in two. It's into opposites. There's a good version and a bad version. So Seth is the other half of Osiris, you might say. So that's how you want that's how you want to read the story. Um, and so Jordan describes them as the hostile twins or the adversary, which is a theme that you're going to see in mythology. In fact, even even the word Satan that we use which happens to come from the word Seth, uh, actually. So this ancient Egyptian character in their mythology, Seth, 
uh, that word becomes, uh, you know, uh, through the interaction of the of the um, Semitic and Hebrew peoples with the uh, Egyptian peoples over time, it becomes part of the Jewish tradition as Satan. So it's the same. It's the same word, and in fact, it means adversary. And we understand that, you know, and from the Western perspective, we understand that um, that Satan is the adversary of God. Um, what this is basically telling you is. If we think about this from the Western perspective, that Satan and God are the two halves of the coin. They're the two halves of the order coin in this in this Hebrew example. So it's not it's 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 interesting because most people would 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 have difficulty uh, at least at least you know Christians or maybe conservative religious people would have difficulties considering God and the devil to be one thing. Um, and then what, what would that even mean? But that's exactly the paradox that I that I continue to point out, is that they are together, they're sort of, again, opposites united. They sort of become something that's like nothing. It sort of seems like nothing, like they cancel each other out. But in truth, they're both there, they're both necessary, and you can't have one without the other. You can't have God without the devil, something like that. So interesting. All right, so from here... The story continues. Jordan says, Osiris, although great, was naive in some profound sense, blind at least to the existence of immortal evil. This blindness brings about, or at least hastens, Osiris's demise. So he's basically saying, look, Osiris represents the good, the good side of order, you know, the benevolent king. Seth represents the bad side, the tyrant. Um, and, and if you pretend that the bad side doesn't exist... If you're blind to it, as they're, as they're describing in this myth, Osiris was blind to it. He didn't see it. He pretended like his brother wasn't what, what he was. And that's another way of saying that he's pretending that he himself is not entirely what he, what he is. I mean, Osiris is uh, also Seth. They're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. So, so to ignore or, or pretend that the potential for evil doesn't exist or that you aren't capable of it. Um, that, that is like the same thing, really, that the psychologists say when they say that you're repressing something. And we all know how that goes. If you repress something, it becomes a psychological disorder. It becomes an issue. Um, and that's something that even Carl Jung talked about with the, uh, with the shadow. You know, he, he specifically said there's this archetype that everybody, everybody you know, has access to in your, in your psyche, something called the shadow. And it's the part of you that you pretend that that isn't part of you. It's the part of you that has nasty, evil, malevolent thoughts. You know, it's the part of you that, um, I don't know what silly examples I can give you, but I'll give you one. When I was a little, when I was a kid, I was uh, in in the band. I was playing trombone. You know, I was in the middle school or whatever playing trombone. And trombone has a slide. So half the fun of playing the freaking instrument is, you know, pulling and pushing the slide up and down. And what happens is though you're sitting there in uh, in band practice, you're playing your songs, you're sl- sliding the slide back and forth, hitting your notes, and you realize after a minute that the row ahead of you, all of the kids sitting ahead of you, are just within the distance of your slide. And if you wanted to, you could just you could just pull pull that slide out real quick and pop them right in the back of the head. Um, would that be mean? Uh, yep. Uh, would that be a dick move? Certainly. Would that be a thought that occurred to me as like an 11-year-old kid? Absolutely. So there's a part of you, uh, again, whether it's whether it's something that's just, um, you know, 
I guess whether it's a greater or lesser part of your of your personality, there's always going to be that there, the shadow, the malevolent force, the, the part of me, let's say after I've had children, that knows I could strangle a man to death. I'm certain of it. If I had to protect my family, I would crush somebody's windpipe with my bare hands. I would, and I could, and I know that. But when I was an 11-year-old kid, I didn't know that. I thought that that those actions were reserved for crazy people, that those actions were reserved for evil people, that those were people other than me. Um, But that is not the case. That's in every single one of us. And Osiris, in the story, he pretended like that wasn't the case. He gave his brother the benefit of the doubt and pretended that, that the shadow doesn't exist, that his shadow doesn't exist. All right, so Jordan goes on, he says, Osiris has a wife, as befits the king of order. Isis, as Osiris's counterpart, is representative of the positive aspect of the unknown. Okay, so here we have a consort, just like we talked about, a male god and a female god that are joined up, Isis and Osiris. Um, so the king and the queen, and this is order and chaos in the myth, just, just like we've been talking about. Now again, she, it does say, and Jordan does say, that she represents the positive aspect of the unknown, which tells you that if you look into the Egyptian religion, there should be an, a missing character to be found somewhere, right? If, if Isis is the good side of of the of the chaos coin, there must be there must be the bad side there somewhere. So, if we studied the Egyptian religion, we would find one, but probably many goddesses that represent that, that missing character. In this story, though, we've got Isis. We've got the good side of the, of the chaos coin. And Jordan says, she gathers up Osiris's scattered pieces. So remember, Seth dismembered him. She gathers up all the pieces of his body. And it goes, in, it goes on to say, and makes herself pregnant with the use of his dismembered phallus. Okay, so there's a picture for you. She's, she's going around picking up the pieces of her, of her dead husband who have been torn to pieces by his brother. She finds his penis and she just uses it to make herself pregnant. Uh, there's, there's a picture for you. Okay, the story, uh, the story continues here. Uh, Jordan says, this story makes a profound point. The degeneration of the domain of order and its descent into chaos serves to fructify that domain and to make it pregnant. And chaos lurks great potential. When a great organization disintegrates, falls into pieces, the pieces might still usefully be fashioned into or give rise to something else, perhaps something more vital and still greater. So Isis therefore gives birth to a son, Horus. All right, so that's interesting. So apart from this really graphic story of... uh, you know, the man being killed and chopped up into pieces and the woman collecting all the pieces and finding his penis and making herself pregnant with it. Apart from that, um, apart from that, uh, there's a couple of things. I mean, the, the, the point Jordan's making here about, he says, when an organization disintegrates or falls to pieces, whatever organization that might be, maybe that's a mythological system, maybe that's a government, maybe that's, you know, a philosophy, maybe that's a set of coherent ideas, maybe it's your culture, whatever. When any of that sort of order disintegrates or falls to pieces, he's saying that those pieces are still valuable. They can still be used to either restore or create something new, um, that they're still valuable. And we know that from the mystic perspective, that every object is like a microcosm of God. It, it contains with it 
in uh, you know the infinity of God and can become anything. It's it's potentiality, as we've said, and we'll say more. So even these pieces that have fallen apart, all of them are like diamonds and gold, and they can be used to create something else. And so, of course, Isis in this story uses those pieces, one piece in particular, am I right, fellas, uh, to to create a son. And this son is born. His name is his name is Horus. Again, Horus, very much like Marduk from the from the Mesopotamian story. Uh, Horus is the is the great hero here. Okay, so Horus. Um, let's see. Jordan says Horus fights a difficult battle with Seth, as the forces of evil are difficult to overcome. And loses an eye in the process. So he struggles with Seth. He doesn't come out unscathed. Seth ends up taking one of his eyes from him. Uh, But in the end, Seth is overcome. Uh, Horus recovers his eye. Now, Jordan says the story could stop here. However, Horus does the unexpected. Descending voluntarily to the underworld to find his father. He says it is representation of this move. Reminiscent of Marduk's voluntary journey to the underworld of Tiamat that constitutes the brilliant contribution of Egyptian theology. So, so Jordan's focusing on this. He's saying, look, this idea, this is actually the most important thing that's gleaned from this ancient Egyptian religion. And it's the thing that, that has survived. It's the part of this ancient Egyptian religion that we still have represented in religion today. So what, so what is that? What is that exactly? Um... When he says that the story could stop here, he's basically saying, look, just like what Marduk did, he goes to the unknown, the underworld. He goes to his mother, Tiamat, chaos. He fights, he fights and kills her and uses, uh, uses her to, to, to build the world. So this is what, um, this is what Horus has done. He's, Horus has gone down, he's defeated Seth. So the story could stop there, just, just like it does in the Mesopotamian story. Uh, but that's not what happens. It, it, at this point, Horus goes, goes again voluntarily into the underworld because he wants to rescue his father. So what, what is that? And this is what Jordan is saying is so important uh, from Egyptian, uh, ancient Egyptian religion. All right, so he goes on to say, Horus discovers Osiris. So this is Horus in, uh, in the underworld. He offers his recovered eye to his father so that Osiris can see once again. So you remember when, when Seth um, killed Osiris, Osiris wasn't prepared for it. He wasn't ready for it. Jordan said he was blinded to the dangers of his brother. And here you have Osi- uh, Horus coming down to the underworld to rescue his father, and he gives him his, one of his eyes. So that you can see that as the remedy for his blindness. So now Osiris has been restored, and he's no longer blind like he once was. That the combination of Horus and Osiris is, again, remember, Horus is like Marduk. He represents consciousness, and what he's given his father is an eyeball. You know, the thing that sees the portal to your consciousness. So now, now Osiris, you know, the the order principle has got consciousness on its side. It's not going to be blinded again. So he goes on to say, they return united and victorious and establish a revivified kingdom. The kingdom of the son and father is an improvement over that of the father or the son alone, as it unites the hard-won wisdom of the past, that is, of the dead, and with the adaptive capacity of the present, that is, of the living. So here you have 
the father and the son ruling now, not just Osiris, after, and after he was killed, not just Horus, but this, this, this union of Osiris and Horus, of consciousness and order. And uh, like, like Jordan says, the order principle represents our culture. It's the things that we inherit from, from our ancestors, from the dead, the world that we inherit from the dead. So when it says it, it, it unites hard-won wisdom of the past, that's culture. That's Osiris. With the adaptive capacity of the present, that's consciousness. That's Horus. Interesting. All right, so it goes on. Marduk, the Mesopotamian supreme god, carves the familiar world from the unfamiliar. Horus cannot remain content with his own ascension, feeling himself incomplete without his father. He therefore journeys voluntarily into the underworld, releases the disintegrated forces of tradition trapped there, and makes them part of himself. This pattern of behavior constitutes an elaboration of that represented by Marduk. So this is one step more, one step further from the story of Marduk to the story of Horus and Osiris. It's not just that Marduk consciousness is now ruling. It's that Marduk, excuse me, in this case consciousness as Horus, is now ruling with his father. So it's culture uh, and consciousness. It's order and the guiding force. Uh, working together. Jordan says, uh, Horus partakes of the essence of tradition. He is his son, he is the son of his father, he says, but is vivified by the infusion of new information. His mother, after all, is the positive aspect of the unknown. And remember, the unknown is something that, that Jordan has called latent information. It's something that we can use to make something new with. Okay, he goes on, he says, as an updated version of his father, he is capable of dealing with the problems of the present, that is, with the, with the emergent evil represented by his uncle, by, by Seth. Horus unites himself with his father and becomes the ideal ruler, the consciousness of present life conjoined with the wisdom of tradition. And this is really important, because when we start talking about, um, we start talking about Seth or Lucifer, the devil, we start talking about nihilism and, the, and the, the type, like Jordan said, the types of people or the types of impulses that negate life, the, the kind of people that say the, life is suffering and it would be, would be better if it weren't here at all. The people that are willing to throw everything under the bus because of their judgment, of their sometimes whimsical judgment about, you know, the value of, of life or existence. Um, so he, so he's saying that, that the wisdom of tradition, that the, that the, um, that the culture, that, that the thing that we're inheriting from our dead relatives, from our ancestors, that that's something that's absolutely critical as a foundation, as something that we can build from, something that we can stand on. And even if that tradition is flawed, it's something that we can notice what's flawed and fix and become more perfect, like our constitution says. Um, it, it's it's the process of becoming more perfect. It's not something that, you know, again, the Luciferian arrogance that, that we're going to talk about uh, would throw under the bus. It would say, look, I've determined that this is not valuable. Let's get rid of it. That, that that type of arrogance is going to pull the rug directly out from under more than you realize. This is what uh, Jordan always mentions uh, Nietzsche having said about the death of God. You know, that uh, God is dead and, and that we'll never have enough water to wash away the blood. It's the, it's the tradition, it's the culture that, that the modern world is, is killed, is throwing under the bus. When, when Nietzsche says God is dead, he's talking about the God of order, specifically. <laughs> All right. Okay. 
So Jordan continues, the, the sophistication of this idea is reputable leadership, creative power, regenerative power, and revivified tradition can hardly be regarded as anything but remarkable. It is also of overwhelming historical interest and modern relevance that the Egyptians increasingly came to regard Osiris Horus as an exemplar, not just of the pharaoh, but of every individual. And this is, this is super important. This is what Jordan was hinting at when he said this part of Egyptian religion continues into the, to the present. He's like, look, this ancient Egyptian story originally was associated very closely with the pharaoh because the, the pharaoh who leads the, leads the, the, uh, 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 the Egyptians, he's, he's looked upon as God. He's like a manifestation of God. He represents, represents the high God. Um, what he's saying is that once you get to this idea of Osiris and Horus, which is basically order and consciousness, that once we get to this ruling idea, then it starts to become something that individuals identify with, not just the pharaoh, but everyone. So people like you and I look at this image of Osiris and Horus. Uh, we, we look at this as, again, the all-seeing eye, which is Horus, the, ha uh, the hawk, the falcon, who could see, you know, everything. That Horus represents consciousness, and Osiris represents the established order or tradition, and that we ourselves look at ourselves as something like that, as consciousness sort of mixed up with this culture that we, bo we were born into, flavored by it. Maybe that's our costume, our culture. So Jordan says here, uh, murdered and dismembered, Osiris was reconstructed by Isis. Remember, Isis is the, the great mother, the matrix of being, where everything comes from, the creative force, the great mother. So of course, she, she, you know, she's going to be the force that can reconstitute Osiris. And then he says, and reanimated by Horus. So it's not just the the raw materials, the potentiality that ISIS represents, that, that we can go in and bring new things out of, but it's guided by Horus. So we've got all three characters we talked about, the known, the unknown, and the knower. The known Osiris, the unknown ISIS, the knower Horus, all in the story. And he says, in this way, he inaugurated a new mode of existence. So this Horus-Osiris combination is what he's referring to, this new mode of existence. It's going to represent some change, some very significant change in the culture, and maybe, maybe in the way human beings are, a change in human being. All right, it starts to get really good here. So Jordan says, This development might also be regarded as an illustration of the increasing psycho psychologization and internalization of religious ideas. So that's a mouthful. Um, psychologization and inter internalization of religious ideas. In the earliest stages of representation, deities are viewed as pluralistic, members of a super-celestial, and he says that is transpersonal and immortal, community. Okay, so we all understand if we think about, you know, ancient Egyptian gods or Greco-Roman gods or whatever, we know that there are many of them, right? They're polytheistic. There's a whole bunch of different gods, and they exist in this super-celestial place, like Jordan said, not here, someplace like heaven or the world of the gods or something, something like that. And, what's, um, and what we know about these gods is that they are transpersonal, meaning that they affect, you know, everybody, not just me, but everybody, and that they're immortal. As long as there are people, they're going to be these forces. Um, interesting. Okay, he says, 
He says later, they are integrated into a hierarchy, which we saw. We saw that with the with the Mesopotamian story with Marduk being elected as the ruler of the gods. So, again, Jordan says later they're integrated into a hierarchy as the culture becomes more integrated, more sure of relative valuation and moral virtue, and a single god with a multitude of related features comes to dominate. So this is the king of the gods. Um, in the Mesopotamian story, Marduk. He says, development of monotheism thus parallels intrapsychic and intracultural moral integration, which, which is fascinating. So the idea here is, you know, we, we, we had the idea of many gods. And the reason is because people experienced these different forces, psychological forces, that they didn't understand. They didn't know where they were coming from. And I talk about lust and anger as good examples of that because... They're things that feel like they just get thrust on you. You don't seem to have much control over them. And they, 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 when, they, when they possess you, they sort of do what they want to do. And you go right along with it. So, so people recognize those sorts of invisible, supernatural, immortal forces. They, they imagine that they're gods, that there's something supernatural outside of myself. Um, then as they evaluate all these different forces that they've turned into gods, they figure out which ones are more important than others. And they put that God on the top of the hierarchy to rule all the others. And then Jordan continues saying the next step is, is like a development towards monotheism, replacing this many gods idea with a one God idea. We're all familiar with that, you know, as, as in the Judeo Christian and Islamic worlds, we're a one God kind of thing. And this is the development that happened here. And he's saying that, look, when you've got all these different um, societies that uh, were originally separate and they all get thrown together under one empire, whether that's the Babylonians or the Egyptians or what, or what have you, that there is a integration that happens, an integration of their gods, an integration of their moral ideas. So the more people you get together to create a synthesis, this is what Jordan called a meta story, or we might call here a meta moral Right, you 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 take a look at all of the different myths of all the different cultures that that are that are now under one umbrella, um, the empire, let's say, and you and you see what are the morals, what's the moral of all these myths that 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 they that they tell, and then we're going to condense those morals down into an even more powerful single story, and this is this is a meta moral. So now what he's saying is, if you can condense all of these different myths down to one single moral morality or one single story, that what that what that also means is that you can condense all the gods down into one god. And this is what happened. This is what we see. So Jordan continues, as the average citizen identifies more and more clearly with this monotheistic integrated pattern, its external nature as an, as an attribute of the gods recedes. It becomes more clearly an attribute of the individual human being and more like what we would conceive of as a psychological trait. The God's subjective aspect, his or her intrapsychic quality, becomes more evident and the possibility of personal relationship with the deity emerges as a prospect. So that's, that's important. I mean, there's, there's definitely a difference between thinking about gods as existing outside of you and imposing themselves on you and not having any control over that when it happens, like the way you feel if you are struck with lust or struck with anger, that kind of thing, where you're possessed by this emotion, this psychological trait, as Jace, as uh, Jordan would say. Um, that there's a big difference there between that idea 
and the idea that that these gods are or well, that, that they're psychological traits that they're existing somehow inside of you and he says that 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 creates the possibility of having a personal relationship with the deity with god you you hear people say that all the time you know you can hear in fact in the episode i did with my buddy josh um that we released uh, earlier in the week that that uh that's something he says you know as a as a you know, particularly religious person or a more traditional religious person, he says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I've always wondered, maybe you have, what in the same hell does that mean? Okay, so here's the idea. If the gods reside within me, then I can interact with them and they with me. This idea is just a stone's throw away from making the mystic proclamation that I am God. But you can definitely see, though, that if the gods are, are, are living within me, you know, uh, the Bible, I think, calls the body uh, the temple, you know, and the temple is where the God resides. So think about it like that. If the God resides in me, um, then it's possible for me to have a personal relationship with God. That, that That's now a new idea. If, if the gods are within me, then they're, they're just an arm's reach away from touching them, something like that. And again, that is just one giant leap closer to the idea of, of again, we've, we've started from this many gods idea to bringing the gods inside the temple of our, of our body to, uh, to becoming identifying with them as, uh, again, like condensing them down to one single idea of one God and then identifying yourself with that thing. And that, that is what the mystic experience does. It's, again, the statement, I am God, is something that comes from the mystic experience. So it's very interesting how it progresses that way. And so Jordan wraps this, this bit up here by saying, This process is just beginning in Mesopotamia and Egypt. The ancient Israelites bring it most clearly to fruition with potential and lasting effect. It does not seem unreasonable to regard this development as a precursor to the Christian revolution which granted every individual the status of son of God and is implicitly akin to our modern notion of the intrinsic human right. So in the Western world, obviously, we do have this idea of natural rights or human rights, um, and, uh, and it has something to do with recognizing the divinity of each individual person, something in the Western tradition that comes from the, the phrase that we're all created in the image of God. So it's something that I would say uh, means something like we're all representations of God. But what that means you know, deep down is that we are God, just like the mystic experience says. Um, and so what he's saying is that this is sort of teeing up this idea that we're going to see come in the Christian uh, in the Christian religion when it eventually you know eventually trickles trickles down in, in history when it emerges. The, there's this idea that 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 every human being is a son of God, the way Jesus was the son of God, uh, that we model ourselves after Christ, we try to become Christ-like, um, that we all have the ability to be, to be saved, uh, whatever that might mean, and that, that, and that has to do with our, um, with our kinship with God, just like Jesus, you know, Jesus's kinship with God, uh, according, to the, according to the Bible. So believing ourselves to be sons and daughters of God puts us even closer than having God in our in our heads, like like our bodies, the temple where the gods exist. That believing ourselves to be sons and daughters of God puts us like in kinship relationship, like we're like we're brothers and sisters of God, or sons and daughters of God. Um, so now now it's like we shared we shared divine DNA with God, but that again is just another little step closer to the idea of 
identifying with God. So we're not hosting God within our psyches, but we actually are God. And again, I think that is the um, is the pinnacle of this development, this this mystic idea. I'm not sure Jordan would say that necessarily, but I would be curious to ask him, mano y mano, with nobody listening, what he thinks of that. All right, so he goes on. The Egyptian pharaoh, like the Mesopotamian king, served as a material incarnation of the process that separates order from chaos. So this is really interesting. The idea of incarnation, I really like I really like this idea. Like recently, I've been playing around a lot with this idea. Because the idea of incarnation is it means God becoming being, God coming to earth. So whatever it is that, that's not a part of the earth, a supernatural thing, coming to be a part of it, something like that. That's what the incarnation is. And now that idea begins historically with the, with the king, the pharaoh. The king is considered God on earth. The pharaoh is considered God on earth. Um, but that example, just like the story of Jesus, God on earth, it represents the pattern that can eventually be realized in everyone and everything. So that, I think, is critical to the, to the mystic intuition. All right, so the next bit here, um, the next bit here we're going to talk about, I've entitled this section, What is the Great Mother? Or maybe we'll call it Meta Mother. So Jordan starts like this. The state of being that includes or precedes the division of everything into these three constituent elements, which we, we remember those, the known, the, the unknown, and the knower, he says this state might be regarded as the true source of all things, subjects and objects, the single ancestor and final destination of all. So here we're talking about the great mother, the matrix of being, the thing we've been calling chaos. And he's saying that that it might be the source of all things. Now, that rings very true with the mystic experience. I completely understand. I can go with that. Then he says, the source of subjects and objects. And that is that is mind-blowing. The idea that this Ouroboros, this thing that everything comes from, including this uh, the, two, the two first principles, chaos and order, that that is the, is the source of subjects and objects. Okay, so subjects are like you and me. That's consciousness. Objects are the things we experience. You know, you might even call that consciousness, and I think I would. Our experiences are like that. So here, what, what he's getting at is that the great mother is, is subject and object together. Now, that, now that's something that I, I definitely considered, but I didn't really make the connection like we've been doing all along, looking at these perfect opposites and trying to imagine the Ouroboros, the thing that the universe comes from, as, as, as the unity of those things. So we talked about chaos and order, consciousness and unconsciousness, feminine and masculine, yin and yang, all these things. But here, he's putting it this way, subject and object. And that makes the hair stand up on my arms. So there's something that my intuition is telling me is, is very true and meaningful about that. That when we're looking at these pure objects and we're thinking about the Ouroboros, that that might actually be best understood as these two opposites united. Subject and object. Consciousness and the cosmos. Whew, buddy. Preach. All right, let's see. Jordan goes on. He says, 
it seems impossible to determine what it is that was before anything was. Now that's the crux of it. That's what we're trying. That's what we're asking when we when we say how did it? How did this get here? You know, what is God? Again, going back to the beginning, either God always existed and the universe, you know, always existed, or God created the universe. There was something that created it, so there must be a God. That this is this circular argument uh, regarding the existence of God. Uh, but that's what we're asking about. We're asking about what was there before anything was there. Okay, was there a time before anything was there? And if that's the case, was there something there? Okay, this is, this is a paradox. He's saying it seems impossible to understand what was there before anything was there. He goes on, myth attempts the task despite its impossibility. So our myths, our religions are trying to answer this question. He says, it does so using the tool of metaphor. The metaphorical statements of myth work because unknown or partially known things inevitably share characteristics with more thoroughly familiar things. Two or more objects or situations come to occupy the same mythological or categorical space because they share similar form, function, or the capacity to compel behavior. So we talked about this before. We talked about the idea of categorizing things, and we have this orienting reflex. So even when we, even when, when we experience something we've never experienced before, that we have this automatic response to it, which is to become afraid and curious, that it compels our behavior. It makes us feel afraid or curious, or both. Um, that that's interesting. So so let's 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 go back here to the sentence. He says two or more objects or situations come to occupy the same mythological or categorical space because they share similar form, function, or capacity to compel behavior. Now he starts using examples here that are from mythology. So he's talking about how you can take an idea that's unknown, like the idea of God, and you can tease out some information about it according to categories. It's like a, me- a metaphoric way of understanding. God is like this, or God is not like that. Um, so it's not a direct route. It's not like we have a way of knowing uh, direct information about God exactly, although we could argue that experience is that in our day-to-day. Um, so he's, he's going to use examples about how how these categories start to fill out details about about knowledge about something that's completely unknown or you might even say in this case made up because we're talking about talking about make-believe uh, characters and myths um, again that's not to say they're not valuable but here we go he says for example Mars he's talking about the uh, the Roman god Mars he says Mars is a warlike planet because it is red and red the color of blood is associated indelibly with aggression the dark and the animals of the forest are the same because they are both unfamiliar, because both causes fear. Through such linkage, we might otherwise remain entirely mysterious, can begin to become comprehended. So here's the idea. We have, again, in, in this particular mythological example, the Romans, uh, or the ancient Latins, they look up at the sky, they notice that, that there are these planets that they can detect. So they immediately call these planets gods. Mars, you know, the planet, becomes representative of the, the god of war. So how did they come to that conclusion, that, that there was a god like Mars, and that it was associated with war? And it's because there is this tapestry of meaning. And he's saying, look, they look up at Mars, they see that it's red. Red is the color of blood. It has this association with blood. 
It also has the association with aggression because what causes blood? Very often aggression. Okay, and then the dark and the animals of the forest because they're unknown. They also fit into the same the same category, this fear producing category. And so suddenly you have a god like Mars that has associations with it beyond just um, just this hypothetical you know supernatural being. You have you have you have a force that you feel like anger in your psyche, and now you associate it with a planet up in the sky. You associate it with the color red, with blood, with aggression. With, with other things that cause fear. And all of a sudden, you, there's a lot more sense to be made out of this idea of a god called Mars than there was before, before we began this, this process of association. So this is going to become important. Um, so so understand, um, understanding of the unknown begins with its emotional value. So that's the fear and curiosity we talked about. But then it, but then it fills itself in with connections and associations that it has with other unknown or, or formerly unknown things that you, would, that you would put in the same category. And this is, how the, this is how these mythological characters start to take form and flesh themselves out. So Jordan says, myths of the origin, so this is what he's calling creation myths, like our, like our myth from Genesis in the Bible. Um, he says, metaphorically portray the nature of the infinite potential that characterizes being prior to the dawn of experience. Okay, so we tell a story about the creation, a creation myth, and the symbols and the images in that story are supposed to be uh, portraying whatever it was that was there before there was anything. And Jordan calls that the infinite potential that characterizes being prior to any experience. So before there's been any experience, there's this thing that's potential, infinite potential. I could not agree more. The mystic experience had basically put that exact phrase, uh, you know, in, in my head when I was thinking about it, potentiality or infinite potential, it's just free floating Terminator two substance that I keep referring to potential. So Jordan says this general symbolic construction might be said to constitute a partial attempt to represent the unrepresentable whole these particular forms are influenced in their development by the environmental and cultural conditions obtained at the time of their emergence. So that 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 ties in. In fact, that's the reason why I call this section, uh, you know, the the, the you know the costume that God's dressed up, or these uh, these known known and know are dressed up in costumes. This is what he's saying. He says the these particular forms. So whatever particular forms the known, the knower, the unknown take, that they're influenced by their environment and their culture. So whatever their costume is, however they they seem when they, when they arise, if they end up appearing as Artemis or Diana or Thor or Loki or Anubis or Shiva or whatever, that whatever costume it has, that's specific to the culture and the environment of the people. But underneath that costume, you've got the same metaphorical characters. So Jordan says, the process of metaphorical representation provides an increasingly communicable bridge between what can be directly explored and what remains internally unknown. So, so what can be directly explored, that's the known, okay? And what remains eternally unknown is, is whatever it is that gave rise to these known things, the chaos, the thing that we, we can't describe exactly. But what he's saying here is that these, 
these the things that can be directly explored, the thing that I'm going to call being, material reality, that those are examples. They're embodiments, incarnations, manifestations of God, of the great unknown. So it's something like this. I can, I can know something about the matrix of being because I can see it, its representation in, in reality. So if I, if I see a hundred different things in my life that are, that are completely unknown, that I can learn something about this great unknown, about this goddess, um, by, what, by what these individual manifestations have in common, something like that. So Jordan says, Mythic symbols of the chaos of the beginning are imaginative pictures whose purpose is representation of a paradoxic totality, a state which is already to say something too determinate, self-contained, uniform, and complete, where everything now distinct resides in union. So this is interesting. Now, we, we understand when he's saying, look, we're trying to make sense of this Ouroboros idea. Uh, we, we, we really have nothing in our reality that we can... That, that gives us a good basis to talk about it. So it's this process of, of starting with the, with the emotions that we feel and building on the associations to create this, this flushed-out character that we have. Uh, the, these are the imaginative pictures that he's talking about here. He says that they represent a paradoxical totality, and that's exactly what we've been talking about when we say that pure opposites taken together, like chaos and order, like known and unknown, like Tiamat and Apsu, when you put them together, that you sort of get this canceling out effect. You know, the, the good God and the bad God. When you put them together, what do you get? You sort of have no God at all, right? The good and the bad kind of cancel each other out. So what, what are we getting at here? He, this is the paradox that he's talking about. That, that in this Ouroboros, in this state, you have something that's the most important thing. It's the thing that everything can come from. And yet somehow it's nothing. It's not, it's not in being yet. This is why I... This is why I like the word non-being. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's just not in being. It's something else. And Jordan says it's self-contained, uniform, and complete. So the opposites are together. It's complete, where everything now resides in union. And he goes on to say, a state where being and non-being, beginning and end, matter and energy, spirit and body, consciousness and unconsciousness, femininity and masculinity remain compounded prior to their discrimination into separable elements of experience. In this state, all conceivable pairs of opposites and contradictory forces exist together within the all-encompassing embrace of an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and altogether mysterious God. So that is a great, a great description of what I struggled with understanding in the mystic experience. Uh, it, it is a paradox. Um, it is difficult to understand, but that, I think, is a very good way of looking at it. Everything together is a state, again, where all conceivable pairs of opposites exist together within the all-encompassing embrace of an altogether mysterious God. Yes, sir, Jordan, I agree with that. Now, he, he gives an example here from William James. Uh, William James is a philosopher, uh, but he wrote a really important book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. So he talked a lot about a lot about you know mystic experiences and different types of religious experience. And he basically tried to capture, explain what this idea of, of the Ouroboros is, this idea of non-being, trying to this paradoxical idea. And he was trying to make sense of it himself. And he did it in uh, kind of a kind of a poem. 
So, in fact, it's, I think it is a poem. I'm going to read you the poem here, then I'll, I'll give you my thoughts. He says, No verbiage can give it, because the verbiage is other. Incoherent, coherent, same. And, and it fades, and it's infinite, and it's infinite. Don't you see the difference? Don't you see the identity? Constantly oppo- opposites united. Every attempt at betterment, every attempt at otherment, is a, it fades forever and forever as we move. Okay, so that's the poem. Thank you, William James. Um, I actually love this poem. When I read it, I thought, I told you guys before, but I took a, um, keep a bunch of notes. And some of the notes I, I've taken are immediately following or during mystic experience, so I can try to capture as much of this as possible so I don't forget important things that fade. And this is what I, this is what I want to, mention here. When he starts off, when William James starts off saying, no verbiage can give it because the verbiage is other. It reminds me of something that comes from Taoism and it, it, Taoism has the same like conflict that they're dealing with. And there's a, a passage in the Tao Te Ching, which is the Taoist holy book. It says something just like this. It says, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. Okay, so he's saying no verbiage can give it because that verbiage is other. He's saying the moment you give it a name, you're further off the path of truth. The moment you the moment you pretend that you can encapsulate it with a name, um, that you're you're further down the alley of of error, basically. Um, and so the the Taoists would say, look, I'm going to call it Tao, but that's not that's not the real name. Um, and again, that's exactly what he's saying. And, and even the use of the word other, that, that was the actually the first set of words that I was using um, was being an other to, to try to understand the relationship between God and man or the universe with this supernatural force of creation. So it's funny that he uses that word. Um, it, just, it just resonates. Then he says, um, co- incoherent, coherent, same. I love that. We already talked about that paradox. That's trying to understand chaos and order together or opposites together. That somehow somehow you can they can cancel each other out, become nothing, and yet remain the most important thing there is, the matrix of being. Um something like that. And then when he says and, and it fades and it's infinite and it's infinite, the fact that he repeats that, it's and it's infinite and it's infinite like that. Um that makes me think that he had a feeling of awe. He was—he couldn't say enough how amazing this thing is, how how unlike anything he's ever experienced, how vastly more deep and complex it is. And I can tell you for certain that is the experience of God, absolutely. Um, and then he says, don't you see the difference? Don't you see the identity? I, I love that. I mean, when we talk about the word other that he used earlier, that's the idea is it's something different, other. Something so non-being is different than being. That's why I use that word. I like that word. It's not that it's nothing. It's that it's something very different, something totally different. And he says, "Don't you see the difference?" Which makes me think of the difference between between God and and reality, whatever that might be. And then he says, "Don't you see the identity?" Which is which is kind of the opposite of the difference. It's saying, you know, if you have an experience of God, whatever that thing is. That that ultimately is something that you can identify with, and I think and I think should identify with ultimately. So he's saying, don't you see the difference? Don't you see that you're the same thing as it? It's like the difference and the similarity is important. 
And that just, it just rings of the mystic experience. It just rings of that mystic intuition that we, we've talked about. Um, and that, that mystic intuition makes you confront the fact of your identity with God. So I love it. And he says, constantly opposites united. Um, I mean, again, that's tied back to the incoherent, coherent, same idea, but it's, that's what it's all about. Um, it's the metaphor for the unknowable, for the unexperienceable, for whatever it is the Ouroboros is. And then this is the best part, in my opinion. He says, every attempt at betterment, every attempt at otherment is a, and then he can't answer the question. He says, it fades forever and forever as we move. And what he's describing here is something that I've experienced many times. He's saying that he's basically asking a question here. He's like, what can we do to make things better? What can we do to make things other? And this other idea is like it's a continuation of being. It's more order. It's what more can we bring from the chaos into reality? You know, that's the otherness. And he's saying he's saying we're attempting to make things better. We're attempting to bring more into the, into the world. And he's saying, what is that? And he can't answer the question because in the mystic experience, you have moments like that where there, there are these epiphanies that's hard to describe these aha moments that have the most power you've, you can ever imagine the most impact on you and they fade and they fade. It's like, it's like Eureka. And then you can't remember what the fuck it was. You just thought this idea that blew your mind. Um, so, so you can see even William James, he seems to be on the precipice of this, of this epiphany. Uh, he's asking this question. He's going to get the answer to this very, you know, spiritual truth. And then it fades and fades forever, he says. And I've, I mean, I can, I can't tell you how many times it's happened to me. This is why, this is why I like to write things down and record things now. All right, so he goes on to say that this state, he's going to call this the totality of things, chaos, everything together. He said it might be regarded as the objective world in the absence of the subject. So so this is the Terminator 2 substance, that metal that ship, shape, ships shape, yeah, shifts shape um, and transforms. It, it's the stem cell. It can become anything. That that thing is what, I, what I've called potentiality, what, what Jordan called latent information. Um, so the totality of all things, this is what we're talking about here. Um, he said it can be regarded as the objective world. It might be regarded as the objective world. So when you look out and you see the trees and the space and the, and the stars, that behind that behind that veil might actually be something more like, I don't know, Terminator 2 substance, that, that T-1000, that, that, that liquid metal that can transform into anything. That's my best symbol here. That, that might be that. It might be the Matrix, the, the wall of ones and zeros, but, you know, that, that the movie the, the Matrix would show behind their virtual world inside the Matrix. Something like that, let's say, that's behind, uh, that's behind the, the, um, the subjective world. So there might be, she, uh, Jordan saying, that thing, this chaos, just this thing that we're calling God, just right there behind our perceptions all the time. And he says... Although this conceptualization is too narrow, as primordial chaos also contains that which evolves into the subject. And now this is, this is amazing to me. It's the idea that we could look out at the, the world, at, have our subjective experience of the world, and know that behind that subjective guise, you might say, is, is this whatever it is that God is. But here's the kicker. It's not just that. It's not just whatever, whatever's behind our experience. 
It's also the experiencer itself. You and me. So what comes out of the totality of things is not just the potential for the cosmos. It's the potential for the cosmos and for consciousness. So this was the piece that I that I was missing until I read Jordan Jordan Peterson in more detail. You know, the symbol of the oneness as chaos and order or consciousness and unconsciousness or masculine and feminine. That these are all different symbolic ways of understanding the same thing. That the oneness that I that I learned about in the mystic intuition, it contains not just the potential for being, for the material cosmos to come in, come into existence, but also for the subject, for the self, for consciousness. Uh, which exists within and experiences the cosmos. So with so the oneness is subject and object together. This is what they mean. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's hard to wrap your head around. But imagine that your experiences and and yourself as the experiencer are really one thing. And then try to understand from that perspective why I continue to say that we are God or that we are the experience God is having. Something like that. All right. This little next section I'm going to call what are objects? Okay. So we talked about, um, we talked about the Ouroboros and God trying to understand what was there before anything was there. Now I want to talk about, now I want to talk about objects. We're talking about the, the, um, the, you know the the specific things that we see that we encounter in being, or or you might just call it being itself, objects or a collection of objects. You might just say the the planets and the stars and space and time are a collection of objects. So what are objects? Jordan says things have a nature that appears independent of subjective will, and follow their own laws of being and development despite our wishes. Okay, fair enough. Makes sense to me. He's saying that that things that we can examine and see that things exist seemingly on their own, that they follow laws that seem to apply to only them and things like them, you know, like planets or animals or whatever we're looking at, um, that things do seem to be independent of us, that the, the things that are, that are observing them. Um, so he, he goes on to say, however, the job of determining what a thing is, in the absence of the subject, is much more difficult. So it's one thing to say that a thing, a thing might exist, whether or not I'm there to observe it. But determining what it is, if I'm not there to deserve it, or to, to observe it, rather, is a very difficult thing. So we might say it exists, that there is you know, an objective world, but we can't, without a, without a knower, say anything about what it is, just that it exists, only that it exists. So he says... It is certainly the case, as we've seen, that the value of an object can shift with shifts in the frame of reference. So just to give you an example, if, if that's not f familiar enough to you already, is that something that, that was once seen as an obstacle, you could, you could see that thing as a tool just by changing your perspective. So if you're you know, walking down the sidewalk and you're trying to get from point A to point B, and there are all these scooters in your way and bicycles in your way, and they keep slowing you down, that's an obstacle, but you change your perspective and say, why not I just hop on one of these damn things and I'll get to point B very much quicker. Then suddenly something that was an obstacle five seconds ago is now a valuable tool. Silly example, but this is what he's saying. He's saying that the value of something can shift just by changing your perspective. 
Then he goes on to say, it appears to be true, however, that what an object is in and of itself is also subject to the same type of shift. So it's not just, again, there's not a difference, as Jordan has said, between what something is and what something means. And if you can change what it means by changing your perspective, there's a way in which you change what it is. You've changed what it is, something like that. He says, any given object, a table, say, exists as a table because it is apprehended only in a very limited and restricted manner. Okay, so uh, it's so he's saying it's the limited perception of the thing that seems to make it what it is. We see only only a certain limited part of what something is. This is kind of what he's getting at. And he goes on to say, something is a table at a particular level of analysis, specified by the nature of the observer. In the absence of the observer, one might ask what it what it is that is being apprehended. Is the is the proper level of analysis subatomic, atomic, or, me- or molecular, or all three all at once? Should the table be considered as indistinguishable elements of the Earth upon which it rests, or of the solar system, or of the galaxy itself? The same problem obtains from the perspective of temporality or time. What is now table was once tree, before that Earth, before that rock, before that star. It will be perhaps ash and then earth, then far into the future, part of the sun again, when it finally re-envelops the earth. The table is, is what it is, only at a very narrow span of spatial and temporal resolution, the span that precisely characterizes our consciousness. Whew. Wow. Jesus. Okay, so I don't know where to begin. I mean... This is, an, this, is an, this is an amazing point. So when I try to explain that everything, objects, are infinitely complex, and that they, every object contains within itself, even an atom contains within itself everything that God is, an infinite, an infinite potential. Um, and I believe that's true because I believe everything is a, is a uh, projection, uh, is, a, is a representation of the thing that God is, and that is what God is, potential. So... So when you try to take an object and you're asking what it is, he's saying that, look, these things are way, way more complex than you can imagine. So even if we just take a paragraph to describe, um, you know, what the thing used to be and what it might become and the context in which it sits and how, and how the different ways in which we can look at that thing as a part of something bigger or, or smaller or what have you that it becomes very complicated. And we don't know, again, if I'm looking at a table, whether I should be looking at the things it's made, built from, the atomic and subatomic particles and molecules that make it up, if I'm supposed to be looking at the table as a whole, or the earth that it, the table exists within. Like, There's no way for me to know where the boundaries are of that specific object. Even in time, what it used to be, what it will be, what it is now, that the thing that makes it exist, the thing that makes it what it is, that is consciousness. That is consciousness. It's you and me. It's the thing that exists at a certain at a certain level and sees things at a certain level and uh, you know experiences things at a certain level. That's what makes existence what it is, whatever that word means. So, so we can't say that there is no objective world uh, just because we can't experience it completely. We can't say that it isn't there. 
What we can say is that the objective world existing as a differentiated object does so only in relationship to the observer. What is objective uh, what it is objectively is infinitely complex and holds infinite potential. Amazing. All right, so Jordan says, so what is the table as an independent object? What is it that can be conceptualized at all spatial and temporal levels of analysis simultaneously? So imagine you could you could experience something at every level at, at once. What it was, what it is, what it will be, um, you know, in every context, the smallest and the largest. You can you can look at something and experience it at all of those things, at all of those levels, all at once. He says, does the existence of the thing include its interactions with everything it influences? and is influenced by, gravitationally, and electromagnetically? He's saying, well, hey, does the object itself extend to the things it influences and the things that influence it? Because if that's the case, then we can't exactly define the object by its own boundaries, but we have to, we have to define it by all the things that it interacts with. And that reminds me of, a, of an idea in physics of entanglement and the, and the notion that all things are entangled. Um, I mean, that's, that's completely consistent with modern quantum physics. Boy, so Jordan says, is that thing, everything it once was, everything it is, and everything it will be all at the same time? Where then are its borders? How can it be distinguished from other things? And without such distinction, in what manner can it be said to exist? And so this is the heart of that paradox of that um, unknowable problem of non-being or chaos. He's saying that if, if, if objects, if the things that emerged from chaos, order, we can, we can call them, or being, all the things we see around us and experience, we ourselves, if we, if we look at ourselves and try to define what we are and, and look at the questions that Jordan has brought up um, about, again, space and time and the different levels of analysis that you might, that you might uh, consider to be reality, and then, and then expanding that to the things that we, that we influence and that influence us, he's he's saying like once you've done that, when you when you're considering when you are forced to consider all things together, all things as one, like the mystic experience would ask you to do, that without those distinctions, um, in what manner can we can can we say that the world exists exactly? So this is that idea, that paradox of non-being. He goes on to say. What is an object in the absence of a frame of reference? So suppose you have no frame of reference, you have no observer. Then he says the answer, it is everything conceivable at once. It is something that constitutes the union of all opposites and something that, that cannot, therefore, be easily distinguished from nothing. Man. He says, what I am claiming is that objective things are in fact the product of an interaction between whatever constitutes our limited consciousness and whatever constitutes the unlimited background that make up the world. Boy. Um, so the idea that consciousness and, and being are considered to be uh, subject and object together, that that, that is, the, is the matrix of being, as Jordan, as Jordan said. Um, and then putting that idea in th- this perspective, that he's, he's saying that... Um, that our, that our consciousness in the background of the matrix of, of the world, that those things interact to make an object. Um, we've already said that subject and object are not different things. They're all together as the Ouroboros. 
So, so definitely, definitely, we see a we see a relationship between those things that you can't get rid of. It's like the it's like the background or the matrix is potentiality from the mystic perspective, or latent information, as Jordan would say. Um, it is or can become anything, and the process of transforming it from from everything to something specific, that process is done by consciousness. Whew, boy. So you look at something objectively, without an observer. What Jordan is saying is that is something that can become everything. It's the Terminator 2 T-1000 stuff. And how does it, how does it become, go from T-1000 stuff to something specific? And that is done by consciousness. Oh boy. Um, so just remember, you know, as far as that goes, that consciousness and potentiality are unified opposites within the Ouroboros. They are one thing. All right, enough of that. Let's go to this next section here. It's, uh, I've, I've entitled it Ouroboros and Creation Myths. So we'll get a little, into a little bit more detail uh, on it. Jordan says archaic myths describing the ultimate origin. So now we're now we're looking at um, specifically myths that talk about the Ouroboros. He's saying they concern themselves with representa- uh, representation of the source, not not of objects, but of subjects and the experience of those subjects. This is very important. So so myths are talking about consciousness and experience and how those things came to be. They're not talking about objects and how those things came to be. So that's the that's the uh, the purview of science. Myth, on the other hand, is talking about subjects and the experience of those subjects. Um, now, he does say that some parts of our experience are objects. Those things are connected, so we can't get rid of that. But that myths themselves are going to focus more on consciousness. Um, and the origin myths are about the origin of consciousness. So that's how we want to look at look at these stories. He says, such myths typically describe the genesis of the world as ex- uh, the world of experience by relating the existence of a primordial God, portraying the division of this God into the world parents and detailing the separation of those parents by their own son. So again, uh, this primordial God is the Ouroboros. Uh, it gets divided up into the world parents. That's chaos and order. And there's, and the, the thing that does the separating, that separates chaos from order, is their son. That's consciousness. That's Marduk. That's Horus. All right, he says, This is a stance informed by mythology, in particular by myths of the origin. He says, The Indo-European myth of Indra and Verta provides a representative example. Okay, so you guys may remember in prior podcasts we did talk about Indo-European and Proto-Indo-European, but these this is the culture that, that we believe um, uh, explains all of these uh, correspondences between uh, all of these different ancient cultures in Europe and how their languages and their deities all share similar names. We talked about that. So this is one of those ancient ancient myths, um, and it's about Indra and Verta. And he's going to quote um, a guy named uh, Merce Eliade, who's a, uh, another um, academic who talks all about religion and comparative religion. And he's, he's talking about this myth, and he says, The central myth of Indra, which is the most important in the Rig Veda, narrates his victorious battle against Verta, the gigantic dragon who held back the waters in the hollow of the mountains. Indra lays the serpent low with his thunderbolt, splits open his head, and frees the waters. So before we go any further, I have to, I have to show you, uh, if you haven't already picked up on it, the connection here. So when he talks about Verta, he explains Verta is a gigantic dragon. So again, the dragon of chaos is a very common symbol for 
for that part of the constituent elements of reality, the unknown. So in this case, Verta is Tiamat. Verta is, you know, the, the, the dragon and specifically called the dragon. And then it says the dragon who held back the waters. Now remember, um, that's also something that happened with Tiamat in the Mesopotamian story, uh, where once they tamed her, once Marduk tamed her, he had to hold back the waters. Um, this is what they say about her. Um, she had to hold back the waters in the hollow of the mountains. The waters represent the unconscious. So again, the same story that we saw in Mesopotamia that we're seeing here in this Indo, uh, Indo-European story. He also talks about how Indra uh, kills the serpent with a thunderbolt, and we saw the same thing in Marduk. Marduk had a thunderbolt at his disposal when he fought Tiamat, and then of course Zeus, we all know Zeus holding the thunderbolt. Here we have the same, the same story. We have the, the god of order um, wielding the thunderbolt, killing the dragon. And says he splits open uh, the head of the dragon and frees the waters. Okay. So he goes on to say the primordial serpent god is endless potential. The potential has been represented as the self-devouring dragon because this image aptly symbolizes the union of incommensurate opposites. So he's saying, look, the, this idea of the union of opposites is very hard to understand. So what, what we do is we create a, an image, a symbol that can show that. And this Ouroboros, this dragon eating its tail or serpent eating its tail is the best we've been able to do. What I find interesting about that is that the image of a self-devouring snake, uh, an image of, a, of the oneness represented that way as a circle, it's not uncommon. But I think it does more than just talk about the union of opposites. I think it does more than that. I, I think what it's showing is an image of self-experience because the dragon is eating its own tail. It's the, the, the ground of being is is experiencing itself. It's tasting itself. It's it's feeling itself in its mouth, you know, symbolically. But it's having an experience of itself. And so I, I think, and I wonder what Jordan would think of this, that the Ouroboros really is a symbol of self-consciousness. It's the snake experiencing itself. The snake being the matrix of being. Everything all at once wrapped up together. Experiencing itself. This, I think, is more to the to the point of the mystic experience, and, and I, I think it's worth considering. I, I really do wonder what Jordan would have to say. All right, he goes on to say, the Ouroboros is similarly representative of two anth- antithetical elements. As the snake, it is a creature of the ground, of matter. As a winged animal, it is a creature of the air, the sky, spirit. The Ouroboros symbolizes the union of spirit and matter symbolizes the juxtaposition of the masculine principles with the feminine. Furthermore, as a snake, the Ouroboros has the capacity to shed its skin, to be reborn. Thus, it also represents the possibility of transformation and stands for the knower. Who can transform chaos into order and order into chaos? It is the source of all information that makes up the determinate world of experience and is simultaneously the birthplace of the experiencing subject. The Ouroboros is one thing, as everything that has not yet been explored is one thing. It exists everywhere and at all times. It is completely self-contained, completely self-referencing. It unites the beginning and the end, being and becoming, in an endless circle of its existence. It serves as a symbol for the ground of reality itself. Okay, so i got to point out here, when he says... 
it unites the beginning and the end. That brings to mind the biblical description of God as the Alpha and Omega, as the beginning and the end. So that's something we see even in our own, even in our own kind of modern Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, this is also interesting because you remember how we were talking about these categories, these these attributes that that will flesh out the idea of a God, like like the unknown. We start with the f- emotions that we fear, which feel, which is mostly fear, and then we start to we start to link this this fear causing thing to other other um, other ideas that also are fear causing. And what you see here is the snake being one of them. So obviously, you know, people have a primordial primordial fear of snakes and spiders and things like that because we can get bit and poisoned and killed and hurt by them. So we, we have this instinctive fear of snakes. So you see a snake showing up as a symbol for for this uh, this unknown, and then we start talking about um, understanding the unknown as um, or, or God in this case as a combination of matter and spirit, as Jordan would put it. Um, he says uh, that you can see, for instance, that it represents um, that it represents uh, matter um, because it's a snake and it slithers on the ground, and it's, so it's associated with the earth and the ground. Um, but it, it also oftentimes is depicted with wings. So if you have a snake with wings, suddenly it's a creature of the ground and a creature of the air. And the air is this ethereal place that leads you to the heavens where the gods exist. So you've got you've got these ideas, and you can think about it in your head if you think of myths and, and mythological characters like gods, like the goddess Nike, the winged goddess Nike, or the snake gods from um, from the the Hindu religion, the Naga. You know, so th- these these are these gods exist um, that represent these um, or embody these particular characteristics um, that are just associations of things with with a motion of fear. What causes fear? And suddenly, we can paint this picture. We can give this picture a name and a personality, um, and call it and call it a god. And so, I just wanted to give you some idea of how these associations actually start to flesh out the, these hard-to-define ideas. So the union of spirit and matter, he says, okay. Um, and then he says that the snake has the capacity to shed its skin and to be reborn. So so you can even see um, something like, what a, not just what a snake is, but what a snake does as part of this um, part of this category, this, this fleshing out of the category. Um, and so now rebirth or transformation is also associated with, um, you know, with chaos. Um, and again, it's not just because of the snake, but it happens to, it happens to correspond to, to reality. So the fact that the snake sheds its skin like that, and the fact that the world around us is always changing, transforming, those things get linked together and associated with the matrix of being, with what brought all of this stuff here. It's something that transforms, and it's something that causes fear. Okay, all right. Um, he said it also represents the possibility for transformation, and then that stands for the knower. That That's you and I. I mean, consciousness is the thing that mediates between the known and the unknown, the thing that, that goes into the unknown and brings the known out of it, that learns something from its its experience. Um, so in, in that way, the, the transforming, skin-shedding snake is actually a representation of consciousness. Um, interesting, interesting. All right. Enough of that. 
So he goes on to say, as the heavenly serpent, the Ouroboros was known in ancient Babylon. So in Babylon, this is Tiamat. This is the the um, the heavenly serpent. Uh, again, they didn't call it Ouroboros. They were just using that word for you know for the sake of uh, of using of having a word to use, a consistent word to use. But in Babylon, it was called the heavenly serpent. He says it was often depicted by the Mandeans. Now the Mandeans are a Gnostic religion. Uh, they actually still exist today. They live mostly in Iran. If nobody's ever heard of the Mandeans, they're Look it up. Google that. Um, they're a Christian. No, not a Christian. They're a um, uh, a religion that developed from the Judeo-Christian tradition that emerged right along the same time as Christianity. And they actually believe John the Baptist was the prophet, uh, not Jesus. So a very, very interesting group. But they also have this idea of this of this heavenly serpent or Ouroboros. For them, it's the archetype of the all-one, of everything together. Um, it appears as the Leviathan and as the Aeon. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Aeon is a symbol. Uh, it's an orb, uh, the orb of time that encircles the universe. So you've got this idea. The Leviathan is a serpent. Uh, the Aeon is, the, is also a circle. And then he says it's also, um, it's also associated with Oceanus, which is the, the Roman god of the, of the ocean. Um, and so that's also the connection to water that we brought up about the unconscious and uh, and some of its connections here with uh, with chaos. So the ocean, you know, the place where anything can emerge from, it seems endless and deep. That's that's another uh, image that we we even see bi- biblically. Um, and then he says also as the as the kenef, which is an Egyptian ancient Egyptian symbol of a snake with a lion's head. And that we see that symbol in antiquity, he says it is the primal snake, the most ancient deity of the prehistoric world. So he, he again, right now we're just talking about examples of where we see this appearing in myth. So you kind of you can kind of see the costumes. He says the Ouroboros can be traced in the Revelation of Saint John and among the Gnostics. There are pictures of it in the sand paintings of the Navajo Indians and in Giado. It is found in Egypt, Africa, Mexico, and India among the gypsies as an amulet. And in the alchemical texts, uh, the state of origin has been represented most abstractly as a circle. Plato in the Timaeus describes the primary source as the round. In the Orient, in the Orient, the word springs from the encircled interplay, excuse me, the world springs from the encircled interplay and union of, of yang and yin. According to the adepts of medieval alchemy, discernible objects of experience and the subject to experience them emerge from the round chaos, which is a spherical container of the primordial element. So in all these, all these examples, starting with ancient Babylon, going all the way through the Christian time, the you know, classical antiquity, let's say, all the way up through the, you know, the Christian era, um, looking at the, all over the world, looking at Native Americans from, uh, from North and South America, looking at ancient Greece from Plato, going into to the East and looking at the yin and the yang, that all of these things are, are symbols um, of the same thing, of the Ouroboros, of the, uh, the united opposites that that represent whatever they are to together represent the, the thing that everything emerges from all of, all of, all of, uh, consciousness and, and the cosmos and that we see it everywhere, literally everywhere. All right. He says the Ouroboros is the infinite possibility for sudden dramatic unpredictability that still resides in the most thoroughly explored and familiar of objects. 
Um, and I, I put a little note here that says they're all made of chaos after all. So this is the idea is that um, from chaos, from from the unknown, all of the known is brought into being. The world, uh, the material world is brought into being. So you have to say, even if you've tamed something from the chaos to create something predictable, like the world, let's say, that even that has within it um, always the, the possibility of becoming chaos again, of becoming unpredictable again, because it's made from chaos. Just like the, just like the, the myth of uh, Absu and Tiamat, where Tiamat was killed and, and torn up, and her body was used to create the cosmos. It's literally made of chaos, so chaos can reemerge whenever it wants. Um, I do think it's interesting. We were talking about the Ouroboros image of the snake eating its tail, and then just a second ago, we were talking about the yin and the yang. That those two symbols are both round, and that's. That's important because it represents, obviously, the, the thing that has no beginning and end, the self-created, self-referencing thing, uh, the matrix of being. But in both of those images, you have constant connection between both sides of, of you know, uh, the Ouroboros. So we know within it, we have chaos and order, and those things are always in connection. So one side of the yin and the other side of the yang, they're, they're touching each other. And the in the uh, Ouroboros, you have the snake eating its tail, touching its touching itself. And I think what's important here is the idea, um, the idea of self experience, because I do believe that that is what is meant by the creation of the universe in these mythical stories. That self experience, that 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 is the thing that creates being. I know that's not hard; it's not flushed out or easy to understand, but I do believe that's the case. And while we're talking about the symbols of, you know, how we're going to how we're going to make sense of this symbol, um, the Ouroboros and the yin and the yang to me seem to be very similar and be and to be saying uh, basically the same the same thing that you've got this everything contained in one and constant in constant contact or interaction with with itself. And that's something like the image of self-consciousness, buddy. All right, he says um, that unpredictability is not mere material possibility or potential. It is also meaning. The domain of chaos is a place characterized by the presence of potent emotions, discouragement, depression, fear, loss, and disorientation. It is the affect aspect of chaos that constitutes what is most clearly known about it. And that's just saying it's it's the emotions that the unknown brings about. Those are the things that are that that are the most connected to to what it actually is the thing that 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 represents our best knowledge about it it's the way it makes us feel that we don't have control over it's that spontaneous fear and curiosity that jordan talks about that uh, causes us to explore all right he says the orboros the primordial matrix contains an embryonic form everything that can in principle possibly be experienced and the thing that does the experiencing the great serpent, the matrix, is therefore consciousness, spirit, before it manifests itself, and matter before it is separated from spirit. Now, when they're still in the Ouroboros, they are, they are one thing, spirit and matter, whatever that means. He says, this great mythological idea finds its echo in certain modern theories of development um, of this subject. The famous Swiss developmental psychologist Jean Piaget claimed, for example, that the experiencing subject constructs himself in infancy as a consequence of his exploratory activity. He acts and observe, observes himself acting, then imitates the action, 
forming a primordial representation of himself. Later, formulates a more abstracted model of his own actions. Thus, the subject is created from the information generated in the course of exploratory activity. Contemporaneously, the world comes into being. Wow. So I know that's a mouthful, but what he's saying here is that what he's saying here is that an infant has to experience things in the world, observe himself experiencing those things, and then imitate those actions in order to form a representation of himself in his psyche, in order to become something something independent, in order to become a self. So you put the consciousness in the world, and it has to interact with the world to form its own con- conception of, of what it is itself. And it's the same process that we already talked about that builds the subjective world. So all the stuff the infant is experiencing, it's, it's, it's creating references in, it, in its psyche to things in the world. It's building its world of, of meaning and context. And it's doing that at the same time. It's, it's building its own frame of reference. It's building itself. So there's something about the idea of consciousness, the idea of a self, and the idea of the world, the subjective world, that those things are actually created together. What does that mean? So here, Piaget notices that being, or the world of experience, that, that it's needed for consciousness to form a conception of, of self, to become embodied. And the same process of, of constructing the self simultaneously construct, constructs the subjective world. They're mutually constructed. Unbelievable. It seems that consciousness requires being, and being requires consciousness. They rely on one another for their mutual existence. So this brings to mind the oneness of consciousness and being. Um, it, it, you know, it, it brings to mind the, the myth of Tiamat and Apsu that we've been talking about. That, yeah, of course they rely on one another. Of course you can't have one without the other. Because they're only one thing, remember, they're the Orboros. They're only one thing. They're born together and cannot exist in the absence of one another. This, this is the oneness, baby. It's what I'm talking about from the mystic experience. All right, so taking this um, from, the, from the mystic perspective, we have the, the following sort of fractal picture. God represents itself so that it can experience itself. This representation, or maybe infinite process of representation, is being including the infant that, in, from Piaget's example, that infant then experiences and forms a representation of itself that it can identify with or embody. In both cases, there is self-experience that either manifests the material cosmos or builds the world of experience, our subjective worlds. So what, what it reminds me of is with, uh, an idea that we've played around with already, which is, which is as above, so below, is that that phrase from the Emerald Tablet of Hermes that says, you know, what the world is like down here in being is sort of a reflection or a representation of whatever it is that's creating it, or of God, you, you might say. And so, to put that in a different way, if we're looking at this from, from Piaget's perspective, God and the cosmos, being and non-being, they are mutually constructed, the same way that the same way that we mutually construct our self and our subjective world, that that is a fractal reflection of God creating the cosmos through his through its self experience. 
So I think this is why that yin and yang symbol and the Ouroboros symbol, um, why it's important to understand that they're that they're showing you um, a connection or, or a experience of one side of the whole versus its other, the yin and the yang, or the tail being being eaten, that it's a self-experience, it's self-consciousness. Boy, I think that's that's the heart, that's the heart of reality somehow. All right, so Jordan says the unexpected is information itself. And, and that goes without saying, I mean, if you're only going to learn from something you've not, you've not experienced before or, or something you've not experienced in that same way it has to be new for you to have, for have new information, you know, gathered for, from it. So he says the unknown or the unexpected, um, is information itself. Everything we know, we know because someone explored something they did not understand. Everything we know we know because someone generated something valuable in the course of an encounter with the unexpected. So I, I like this. I think what this is doing um, is it's recognizing that consciousness, even if it's not your own consciousness, if it's the consciousness that came before you, let's say, that they had experiences and constructed the world with it, same way you do. But it's a world that you inherited. You were, you were born into this world, into this culture. So while we build our subjective world from our experiences, we also find ourselves in a world already partially constructed by the thing that we are, by the consciousness that existed before us, by the spirit of our father, as Jordan would say. You know, that's that uh, culture that, you know, that, uh, that thing that, that, you know, that, that comes from the dead, our culture. Um, interesting. Okay. So there's a quote that, he's, that he uses here um, from a guy named Alfred North Whitehead, I think a philosopher he said he was. And he, he has a quote, it's very short, he says, Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations uh, which we can perform without thinking about them. And that makes sense. I mean, um, you know, if you, can, if you can learn how to type, let's say, on a keyboard to where you don't have to think about it, and then you can go and do other things that you didn't used to be able to do uh, before you had to focus all your attention on learning the keys. So there's definitely an idea here that once you've learned something and it becomes unconscious, that, that you can build on that and, and build on that. So civilization itself is built that way. But this is what it makes me think of, and I'm not really sure why Jordan included this quote here, but this is what it makes me think of. Um, okay, so... If consciousness is God, and I've said that many times, um, you know, just what the hell is God doing? And one of the answers to that might be uh, to, to continue the work of creation so that so that we, in the image of God, are doing what God did in the beginning. He created the cosmos, or it created the cosmos. And we now are represent God, rep, you know, uh, we're a representation of God existing within that that creation. And what, what are we doing? We're creating more things. We're going into the unknown. We're, we're creating more known from it. So we're continuing the act of creation. We're continually harvesting more and more known from the infinite unknown. And that's a job that's, that's never complete, you know, because the unknown is infinite. So what this statement seems to imply is that those things we harvest become known and then become unconscious again. He's, he's saying, um, you know, the, the metaphor here from the mystic perspective is that we bring consciousness out of unconsciousness. We bring being out of the unknown, let's say. And then according to Whitehead, we reintegrate it back into the unconscious where we no longer have to, quote, think about them. 
So if I can go out into the unknown and bring something, bring something new out of it, and then learn that thing so thoroughly and, and incorporate that into my, into my being and, and embody it, let's say, to the point where I no longer have to think about it, that it, it, it sinks back into the unknown. And so I just had this picture in my head of this cycle um, you know, of information being harvested from God and then reintegrated back and then in this endless circle, in and out of God sort of thing. Now that idea is going to require a bit more reflection, so I'll have to get back to you guys on that one. I just thought it was interesting. All right, so now he starts talking about uh, the nervous system. He says, the nervous system is designed to focus limited analytical resources where, fo- where focus would produce useful results. So we attend to the places where change is occurring. Uh, consciousness itself, he says, might be considered as the organ which specializes in the analysis and classification of unpredictable events. What I thought was interesting here is that uh, he says, the place where change is occurring so I, th- I think that's being, that's the material world, that's the place where change is occurring. Uh, things like time, you know, entropy, like things are always breaking down and collapsing and people are always growing old and dying. That, that this is a fractal mirror of the transforming nature of God. So whatever it is that consciousness is, is transforming. We talked about that by itself experience. Every time consciousness has an experience, it changes. Just like every time you and I have an experience, we change in some way. Um, so because, again, being is just a representation of God. As God changes, being changes. This is what we see when we say words like time and entropy. That's what we mean. So as I've said before, God experiences itself and is changed by that experience forever. It's a never-ending process. So the change we see in the cosmos is a reflection of the change in its creator, in, in, in consciousness. That said, let me ask this question. Might it be that the transformation of consciousness, that that is noticed by consciousness? So this is what Jordan, what Jordan was referring to when he says that the unknown is what contains the information. It's what draws our attention. The emotion we feel when we encounter the unknown is fear and curiosity. So it, it, when we notice something out of place that doesn't belong, something unknown, it draws our attention. Our consciousness is sort of sucked into it. And this is my question. When, when he's talking about the place where change occurs, so I'm, I'm wondering if consciousness notices itself change, might, might that be the place where change occurs? Is it possible? Like, guys, I don't know what consciousness is exactly. But if it's God, like I believe it is, is it possible that the transformation of consciousness is experienced as being? That the world that we exist in, the cosmos, that what it is is, again, the experience God is having, but what that experience is, is noticing itself changing. I know that's weird. I know that is, there's not a lot of substance there. It's just one of these one of these ideas that I'm playing around with that doesn't have a lot of substance yet that I'm working out, I'm chewing on it and chewing on it. I just wanted to ask the question. Think about it. All right, so Jordan talks about a guy named Rudolf Otto. And he, uh, uh, he like um, William James we talked about earlier, he, he wrote about religious experience. Um, he described the experience of the unknown using a word, numinous. So that, you know, I don't know if you guys have... You guys understand the, the definition there, but it just, it, numinous means like, um, 
you know, uh, heavenly, um, spiritual, you know, um, uh, not material, so, something that's related to etherealness and spirituality and the heavens and that kind of thing, uh, and light and that sort of thing. And so, he's, so he uses that word to describe the, the experience of the unknown. He, so he's talking about this as a, as a religious experience or what I would call a mystic experience. And he says that it's involuntarily gripping, indicative of significance beyond the normal. He says the numinous experience has two aspects, mysterium tremendum, which is capacity to invoke trembling and fear, and mysterium fascinans, which means capacity to powerfully attract, fascinate, and compel. He says this power is commonly considered by those subject to it as a manifestation of God, personification of the unknown, and the ultimate source of all conditional knowledge. I think that's, I think that's a a good way of, of describing that mystic experience that I've been talking about. Um, and Jordan always describes the emotion surrounding it as fear and curiosity. So what this guy's done, Rudolf Otto, is he's given these Latin terms for him, Mysterium Tremendum and, and Mysterium Fascinans. So the fascination and the trembling and fear. Um, I, think that's, I, think that's a, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. All right, so Jordan says, Desire to represent the unknown, to capture its essence, is potent enough to drive the construction of culture, the net that constrains the unknowable source of all things. So let me pause on that for a second. All right, so desire to represent the unknown, to capture its essence, is potent enough to drive the construction of culture. Okay, so I just have to say what he what he's saying here is that the whole pursuit of culture, the whole reason that we have culture that it was created in the first place and has become as complicated and as, as integrated a part of our lives as it is, is because we, we wanted to understand what God is, what the unknown is. Um, and our pursuit, the thing that we call culture, is our pursuit of answering this question of trying to, trying to make the unknowable knowable. So it's like... It's like culture is the culmination and, and continuation of a primordial desire of, of a quest to know the unknown or to know what I am. Now, that's something that, for me, came through, like like I said, dynamite in the mystic experience, is wanting to know what it is that I am. Um, it, it's almost like I'm, I'm beating that question to death in in the mystic experience and the epiphany is the answer to that it's it's the identification of yourself with god um but i but i go i but i go a step further than jordan so let me go back to him he says desire to formulate a representation of that which supersedes final classification and remains eternally motivating might well be understood as an irresistible drive that drive constitutes what might be regarded as the most fundamental religious impulse, the culturally universal attempt to define and establish a relationship with God. <clears throat> so that's interesting because Jordan is saying that culture is the universal attempt to define and establish a relationship with God. He's also said before that culture is this order principle. It's the thing that it's the thing that constrains the infinite terrible unknown into something that's knowable. That's what culture is. It's it's the it's the trying to put God into a net to, to to limit it and capture it so that I can know it somehow, so that I can experience it somehow. Jeez, that's beautiful. And it's something that again reminds me of self-consciousness. It reminds me of that image of the Ouroboros and the yin and the yang. 
and the, and his description of it as an irresistible drive, um, you know, it's just interesting because it makes it sound like an impulse or an instinct. And I, I, I believe that's true. I've, I've felt that within myself my entire life. So it's interesting. All right, so Jordan says, The unknown as such uh, surrounds all things, but exists only in a hypothetical state and finds representation in symbolic form as the Ouroboros, as we've seen. Um, and I think this, when, when he means um, the unknown as such, he's talking about the unknown as, as chaos, as this, as this um, sort of, like he said, hypothetical God that represents um, the, the common source of all of the individual unknown instances that we experience in our actual lives. And he's calling this like a hypothetical state, which I, I find interesting. Um, he says the disintegration or division of the Ouroboros gives rise to all things, including the, dis- the disorder that is defined in opposition to what has been explored. So he's just making a distinction again between uh, between the unknown and uh, and and uh, the Ouroboros of the Great Mother. Um, he says this more narrowly defined domain of disorder, which is the unknown as it is actually experienced, rather than as a hypothetical entity, tends to be portrayed as something distinctly feminine. The serpent of chaos has been lurking behind the Great Mother, and she often adopts reptilian uh, material or bird-like spiritual features. The Ouroboros and the figure of the Great Mother commonly overlap because the chaos comprising the original state is hard enough to distinguish from the chaos defined in opposition to established order. Two things that have no distinguishable features are difficult to separate from one another. Then he says, an immense difference obtains between the possibility of something unknown and the actual unknown, the difference between potential and reality. So I think here when he's, when he's saying hypothetical, what he really means is potential. He's saying that there's this thing, this unknown that exists in potential, and we see the manifestations of it or the incarnation of it in, in being, in the, in the individual instances of unknown that we, that we encounter in the world. So that potential thing and the um, and the real thing, the, the reality and the potential, that um, you know that that there really isn't a difference here. All right, he says the unknown appears to be. Oh, and and he's talking about uh, the unknown being being feminine, which we're going to talk more about. But this is another another part of that categorization process where where the feminine gets uh, thrown into the same category as all these other unknown things. And so the costume that gets put on the unknown, when we see it in myth, becomes very commonly female. So we'll we'll see that. Uh, He says, The unknown appears to be generally conceptualized as female, primarily because of the female genitalia. He says, Hidden, private, unexplored, productive serves as a gateway to the divine unknown or the world or source of creation and therefore easily comes to stand for that place. Novelty and and femininity share categorical identity. From this perspective, both constitute a window, so to speak, into the world beyond. Woman is not merely a model for nature. She is divine nature. She literally embodies the matrix of biological being and provides, as such, an appropriate figure for the metaphor modeling of the ground of everything. So, this goes back to this idea of, of incarnation. Is the idea that there is women, individual women on 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 Earth, and 
And hidden within their biology is this magic, this mystery that allows them to bring new life into the world. It's not something that they themselves even understand. And, you know, absent modern medicine, nobody understands this, this miracle of procreation. Um, so he, he's saying that, look, that, that individual woman literally is the embodiment of this, of this matrix of being. The thing that, give, that, the thing that existence can come from is, is just like a woman giving birth to another human being. You know, it's, it's the place where something can come from. Um, and the, the other thing about that is, is interesting is that, you know, the chaos is, is talked about, Jordan uses this as well, as nature. So the opposites in that case are nature and culture as being the opposites. And nature is the thing that selects. You know, when we talk about natural selection and evolution, nature is the thing that selects. So whatever is going to continue into the future, whatever form of life, whatever, whatever it is that's going to continue into the future, that's determined by nature. Nature is going to select the fittest, and, and that, that fittest is going to continue. But nature is this hypothetical thing. Nature doesn't select shit. Who does, who does the selecting for nature? Women. Women do. Women evaluate men and determine who is going to be able to procreate. So women are the, the, the embodiment of the thing that selects. Women, women are, as Jordan says, divine nature. They're the embodiment of divine nature. Whew, buddy. All right, so the origin, so the beginning of all things, the Ouroboros, he says the origin per se partakes of the same essential ineffable nature, partakes of other uh, identifiable points of origin which cannot be described or comprehended so easily, such as the caves where ores grow and mature, or the ground where crops thrive. The child and the mother mimic life in the world. Boy. So, so, this is an example of the category of, of the unknown beginning to expand our knowledge of what is unknowable. The matrix is not just the source of new life, but the source of all things, crops, ores, you know, the thing he specifically talks about ore, you know, metal ore that you might be, that you might be, uh, you know, harvesting from a, from a mine in a mountain. But you have to imagine that going into a cave is like going into a womb somehow. And the things that you find that are valuable in the womb are just like a child being born from it. That there, that you can see the connection between plants sprouting out of the ground and harvesting and eating them, and a, and a baby sprouting out of a woman's loins. That that there are connections now um, between these other things that that make this symbol of the great mother so much more complicated and so much more alive and real and that's what gets dressed up in costumes and talked about in, in our myths so it's not just the fact that that there's a connection between femininity that makes these representations of chaos feminine when you when you see these goddesses in, in myths that, that again are their representation they're feminine for the, all of these reasons um, and they represent not just the fertility of, of human beings but the, the fertility of the earth and the fertility of minerals and all of it that these all of these things get lumped together um, in our effort to try to understand the unknowable all right and he, in the last bit here he says every individual's primordial world experience is experience of mother who is the world itself in initial developmental stages? And that's so beautiful. The idea here is that when you were when you were developing, when you were a 
an embryo and a fetus, you were existing within your mother. So your mother was the, the universe as far as you're concerned. And, uh, and, and so everybody's primordial experience is, is the same. It's of that dark, warm place where we, where we grow and we start to hear sounds and, you know, all as, as we develop all of these things, we're experiencing the same way, generally speaking, every individual. And so the, the world of our mother's womb, let's say that's the first world for all of us. Interesting. Interesting. All right. This, this next section, uh, I'm going to call the making of a God. Jordan says this, feared experiences grounded in the inexplicable acquire representation in fantasy as fear-producing spirits. Okay, so anything new that I experience that causes me fear, uh, he's saying I'm going to represent them psychologically as a spirit. So there's this thing that exists out there in the world that's causing me fear. And I'm going to kind of wrap it up in this idea of a spirit uh, in my head. He says these spirits clothed in any uh, and in particular anxiety-provoking occurrences give rise to aspects of, exist- of experience that otherwise remain inexplicable or beyond understanding, but impossible to ignore. He says the personality of such beings constitutes the embodiment of incomprehensible motivational significance, capable of inducing cognitive and behavioral possession, impossible to incorporate into the domain of normal, culturally established being. Equivalent but more serious dynamic representations of this type are deities, gods born of human experience. So we've talked about some of this already, but this is interesting. This is the idea of him saying that um, that that we can develop a personality and attribute a personality to this god um, by by basically embodying the emotions that that it makes us feel. So you can imagine if I have the spirit that exists in my psyche that represents this fear that I felt when I experienced something unknown that I didn't understand. I just imagined up this, you know, hypothetical being that that gave me this fear, the spirit. And now and now the spirit itself has a personality. The personality is the is the, the way in the way in which it is that makes me afraid. So now it's this thing that makes me afraid. It becomes a it becomes a monster, let's say. Um and you can see how how these myths uh, can talk about goddesses and gods as having personalities um, and seeming like individual supernatural people in a, in a way. Because what we're doing is projecting our own emotions into these hypothetical gods. He says, What can now be calmly described as an archaic god from the past may also reasonably consider, be considered as the manifestation of a primeval independent personality, the unified embodiment of some set of phenomena united by their effective uh, or functional equivalence. Centuries-long cultural elaboration of such production gave rise to the elaborated existence of transpersonal beings of transcendent power who inhabited the space defined by the collective imagination of mankind." So here, he, here he's basically describing how all of these emotional forces were uh, were given um, psychic form, and uh, that the way that it made us feel became their personalities. And the next thing you know, after hundreds and hundreds of years of of elaborating those ideas, we have all of the crazy pantheons that you see from ancient Greece and Rome, from Egypt, from Scandinavia, from China, all of the various gods that were thought to inhabit the the cosmos, and all the 
the detailed stories and personalities that you can read about in the fables and the, and the myths, that all of those things came about this way, by understanding our own um, drives, instincts, and emotions, and then and then creating these stories around them and these in these uh, costumes and, and forms for them to occupy. So Jordan says the unknown as nature appears as paradox, paradoxical, formidable, overwhelming power applied simultaneously in one direction and its opposite. So this is the idea of the opposites united. So the unknown is both and, and nature in this case is both. He says hunger, the will to self-preservation drives living creatures to devour each other rapaciously. Sexuality bends the individual will inexorably and often tragically to the demand of the species, and existence maintains itself in endless suffering, transformation, and death. The desire to exist permeates all that lives and expresses itself in terrible fashion, an uncontrollable impulse, and an endless counterpoint of fecundity and decay. So that's one way of putting it, uh, but it's true. It's one way of putting the... um, uh, of talking about uh, forces um, like self-preservation and those sorts of drives being as powerful as they are, um, and and how those things, how those things could become mythologized, you might say, or or turn into embodied, uh, embodied gods. He says the. Let's see. He says the earliest embodiments of nature are therefore symbolic combinations of rationally irreconcilable. Uh, attributes, monsters essentially feminine, who represent animal and human, creation and destruction, birth and cessation of experience. Now, he says, according to Eric Neumann, which was Jung's greatest pupil, he says, this is the phase of the chimerical creatures composed of different animals, or of animal and man, the griffins, sphinxes, harpies, and gorgon, for example. Neumann provides a specific reference from ancient Egypt, representing both halves of the great mother. So there's a god, he says, Ta'arut, the pregnant monster, which is hippopotamus and crocodile, a lioness and woman in one. She too is deadly and protective. There is a frightening likeness to Hathor, the good cow goddess, who in the form of, of a hippopotamus is the goddess of the underworld. She has a positive aspect, and at the same time, she is the goddess of war and death. So this is just like I was describing when I was asking you, where are the missing characters? So here he, he's talking about um, Ta'ert, which is a, which is a goddess uh, represented by a half hippo, half crocodile, half lion, half woman creature. I know the math doesn't add up there, but go with me. And there's a different god altogether, Hathor, and she's the cow goddess who's the opposite of Ta'ert. She's not the destructive and deadly. She's the protective and, and beneficent version. But you need both, and in myth you should see both, uh, Ta'ert and Hathor together. That's both sides, the good and the bad side of that great mother. So Jordan goes on, he says, Gorgon-like features appear commonly throughout the world. As the Aztecs um, Coetlicu, whose gruesome headdress was composed of skulls, the terrible mother was goddess of death and dismemberment. As goddess of the snake, she was sacred in ancient Crete and worshipped by the Romans. Kali, Hindu goddess, is eight-armed, like a spider, and sits within a web of fire. Each of her arms bears a tool of creation or weapon of destruction. She wears a tiara of skulls. A snake, symbol of ancient impersonal power, transformation, and rebirth, 
is coiled around her waist. She simultaneously devours and gives birth to a fully grown man. Medusa, Greek monster, with her hair of snakes, manifests a visage so terrible that a single exposure turns strong men to stone, paralyzes them permanently with fear. So here you can see more examples um, of, of these uh, gr- uh, goddess figures from all over the world with, um, with representations uh, associated with them of snakes and things that we've already talked about. Um, you know, things that we can see like the snake from the Garden of Eden, let's say, in our own mythology. And, uh, and again, the idea of fear, of them manifesting fear. And we know that's what happens when we encounter the unknown, like the Greek hero who looks at Medusa and gets turned to stone. It's, it's permanently frozen with fear. The same way a, a, an animal freezes when it's in the presence of a, of a predator. Okay, he also talks about a Gnostic description of, uh, of, of this, you know, uh, Ouroboros from, um, from the Nag Hammadi Library, which is, a, which is a Gnostic library that they found in Egypt. It was one of the greatest discoveries of modern archaeology, right along with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the books there, they date to the 4th to the 2nd century BC. They're very, very old. And they found all kinds of interesting stuff there. But in that library, there's a description um, of God, and it goes like this. For I am the first and the last. Now, I'll stop there for a second and say, nothing strange there. We already talked about the Bible referring to God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So when the Gnostics say, for I am the first and the last, got no problem with that. It's, that seems right up, the, uh, right up the orthodox alley. But here we go. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. Unquote. So the rest of that is probably not well received by m- most Christians. I mean, the idea here that God is being described as the Alpha and Omega, perfect sense. But then he goes on to say, I am the honored and the scorned. I am the whore and the holy one. And so here, the, these are these references now to the other parts of uh, the other characters that are missing, the other parts of uh, God that the Orthodox Jewish or Christian perspective leaves only half-filled um, God is not just order; it's order and chaos. So, and 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 you know, if we're missing that, we're missing the Ouroboros. We're missing the point. And what what this Gnostic book is saying is that we also have to look for the honored one and the scorned one, because God should be both the whore and the holy one. God should be both. That's the right way of understanding it. And as and as distasteful as that might sound, I. I completely understand that metaphorically. That That's correct. All right, so he says, It is impossible to understand why we are so motivated to maintain our cultures, our beliefs, and associated patterns of action without gazing at the, at the and appreciating the horrible figures generated by our ancestors. So he's saying, look, uh, we already said that, that the quest to have a relationship with God may have been this, this, the force that created and drives culture. Um, and he's saying, you know, it's, we can't understand why we value our culture so much and why we won't let go of it and why we keep building it up and building it up and building it up until we look at the myths and see the pictures we paint of the great unknown. And we see the terrible Gorgon with the snakes for hair and the, and the, you know, destructive goddess Kali giving birth to a fully grown man while she's eating him 
simultaneously, that we have to understand that that shit is real, that that shit exists, you know, not, not symbolically, but, but literally. All right. He says, um, he says, we are motivated to protect the products of our exploration, our familiar territories, because unexplored phenomenon are intrinsically meaningful. And that meaning is apt to show itself as threat, as the fear we were talking about. He says, the probability that the meaning of unexplored territory will be threat, however, appears to be a function of the interpretive context, that's you and I, within which it makes its appearance. If the unknown is approached voluntarily, which is to say, as if it is beneficial, then its promising aspect is likely to appear more salient. If the unknown makes its appearance despite our desire, then it is likely to appear more purely in its aspect of threat. Um, it seems to, to me that this is one of the essential messages of the New Testament with its express insistence that God should be regarded as all good. Okay, so let's, let's break this up a little bit. Um, so when he says here that, that so before we talked a lot about um, being able to change our frame of reference so that we can change how we respond emotionally to to the world and that we can actually sort of control how the world seems to us by, by just changing our story, by just changing our perspective a little bit. Um, and so what, what he's saying here is, um, what he's saying here is that well, let's, let's just read this again. He says, The probability that the meaning of unexplored territory will be threat appears to be a function of the interpretive context within, within which it makes its appearance. If the unknown is approached voluntarily, then its promising aspect is likely to be more salient. What he's saying here is that the way that we approach um, the unknown, that our perspective on it, uh, can make the unknown beneficial or terrible. So it all depends on how on how we approach it that seems to make a difference. So what what does he mean by that? Well we we've t- actually kind of said already but but I'll 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 save that for just a minute. Um because you may could because you may wonder uh, if it's the case that I can control let's say how the world manifests itself to me by controlling my um perspective. Um whether there must be there must be a path for that. There must be something that I can tell you to help you. And I think I think I have, and I think I will. But let's just keep, continue for for a second. When he's talking about when he's talking about um, how God appears to you, whether it, in, in a good form or the bad form, has everything to do with your with you the way you approach it or your perspective. I can't help but I can't help but be reminded of the mystic experience. If you've talked to anybody who's had a bad trip, you know, for instance a psychedelic trip that didn't go well. Um, these are the kind of things that come to my mind here. It's like you didn't approach that situation the right way. You didn't take it seriously. You didn't prepare for it. You didn't, you didn't have your set and setting figured out. You didn't have an idea of what you wanted to glean from it. You, you just, you just did it haphazardly, irresponsibly. And you had a bad experience because you approached God in the wrong way. And this is what he's saying here. You know, if you approach God in the right way, that the God you'll get is the good aspect of the great mother or great father and not the bad one. And that, that, that's super important. Interesting. Um, and then this whole bit here where he says that seems to be why the New Testament insists that we regard God as all good. Because again, if God is opposites united, he's not just all good, he's also all evil. 
He's both of those things together. That's the Ouroboros. So why should we regard God as all good? Why does the Bible insist that we do? He says, because if we, if we take that frame of reference, if we take that perspective into our encounter with the unknown, that we're much more likely to get something good out of it. And we're, we're, we're much, likely, much more likely to be experiencing the, the benef, uh, beneficial version of that God. So what does that mean? Let's, let's, let's keep reading. He says, modern, modern treatment for disorders of anxiety. To take a specific example, desensitization. Involve exposing an individual ritualistically to novel or otherwise threatening stimuli. Voluntary exposure teaches the previously anxiety-ridden individual the non-trivial lesson that he or she is capable of facing the place of fear and prevailing. The process of voluntary exposure appears to produce therapeutic benefits, even when the thing being avoided is traumatic. The, the ritual of voluntary exposure fosters mimetic identification with the hero, whether this is explicitly recognized or not, and teaches the individual the courage, exploratory, courageous exploratory spirit can eternally prevail over threat. Okay. Okay. So this is interesting. He's basically saying a few things here, and the word that I think is important that keeps coming up is voluntary. So here's the idea. If you're, you know, and Jordan, of course, is a psychologist. If you're trying to help uh, a patient get through some trauma, that you could, like, you know, he often talks about people that have unrealistic fears, like, a, you know, fear of elevators or something like that that you can desensitize them to it. You can take them to the elevator. You can let them stare at it till they get bored. You can, you can let them, you know, help them to take one step after the next closer and closer to the elevator until they finally can ride it without fear that you can desensitize them to it and help them get over their fear that way. But only if it's voluntary, you can't grab that person by the arm, pull them up to the elevator, hold them there and force them to stand there to realize that they're not going to die. Even if they, even if they, didn't break away from you and they did that, they're not going to take anything beneficial from that experience. They might even be vastly more traumatized. There's something about voluntarily taking those steps, voluntarily facing chaos, facing the unknown, that makes the difference. That seems to be the right way of approaching the unknown on purpose, voluntarily. Turn around and, and look at your... At your at your fear in the eyes, that kind of thing. All right, so he says, um, we have already discussed the fact that the valence of an object switches with context of interpretation. The beautiful countenance of the beneficial mother, so as an example, the, the Greco-Roman goddess Diana or Artemis, that, that would be an example. They're like shown to have a whole bunch of, uh, like there are many breasted goddesses that are designed that are designed to look like they represent fertility, let's say, something very good, that that's the good version of the great mother opposite of somebody like Callie, like we talked about already. Um, he said, the beautiful countenance of the beneficial mother is the face the unknown adopts when approached from the proper perspective. Everything unknown is simultaneously horrifying and promising. It is courage that determines which aspect dominates. Whew, buddy. He says, the, Christ, the Christian hero Christ is the spirit who offers himself voluntarily to the cross, to the grave, to suffering and death, to the terrible mother. Again, Christ is the, <laughs> he offers himself voluntarily. That's the operative word. Jordan says, such a spirit is, above all, humble, 
which is a very paradoxical term in this context, uh, being, of course, that Jesus is supposed to be God. So if Christ is God and then calling him humble in the face of himself, it's a little bit weird. That's what he means. But he says arrogance is belief in personal omniscience. Heroic humility set against such arrogance means recognition of constant personal error, conjoined with the belief in the ability to transcend that error, to face the unknown, and to update fallible belief in consequence. From the modern perspective, it might be said that voluntary, cautious, careful, exploratory encounter with the threatening unknown constitutes the precondition for the transformation of that unknown into the promising. Wow. So all the way from ancient Babylon through the figure of Christ. That's what we've done today. So let's, uh, let's conclude like this. It's interesting that such emphasis in myth and in psychology is placed on the voluntary encounter with the unknown. The reason being that conscious choice to face terror on purpose somehow tames that terror. We seem to force the infinite into submission merely by our conscious will. Did you realize you had that power? It is like we're making the terrible infinite force of being like we're making God bow to consciousness. Incredible. If this fact doesn't force you to recognize the oneness of God and consciousness, I don't know what will. More still, it is our voluntary or conscious interaction with God, our frame of reference, that limits it from its terrible, incomprehensible reality to the one that serves consciousness to the benevolent Great Mother. In this way, we get Diana instead of Kali, life instead of death, even though both are there within the matrix in infinite supply. What's that you say? You don't believe that objective reality, what's really there behind your perceptions, is the matrix, the terrible, infinite power of potential, the great mother? You really think it is what it seems to be, and not the Terminator 2 transforming substance I keep referring to in metaphor? Well, consider this. Jordan Peterson explained that the unknown has emotional value, even before it is experienced. That emotional value is fear and curiosity, but primarily fear. We respond instinctively to the unknown by being afraid. Next, remember what Jordan said about our amygdala. It's a very ancient part of our brain, and it it inhibits fear. This is what it does. It takes our default emotional state, which is paralyzing fear, and it removes that fear so that we can act. Okay, so let's put two and two together, shall we? The world all around us is the mythic unknown, the unexplored place, the place of fear. Stepping back from the, from the mythological, we see the same truth reflected in our brain. Our amygdala sees the world the same way, as something to be feared, Just as the amygdala inhibits that fear, however, consciousness too generates order from fear-generating chaos. In both cases, the mythological and the biological, we recognize consciousness as capable of overcoming chaos, as capable of harnessing the matrix to its will. What the hell does that mean? Find out on the next episode. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. 
It's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.